Dennis and his lame ducks. Dennis had always got a friend who was fantastic, who we had to take care of. Some of them stranger than known, weren't they? and welcome back to the Salon Podcast. This is Wyatt in Nashville, Tennessee. I hope everyone has had a great 2023 so far. I've been really busy with work, which is a good thing. Lots of gigs, lots of studio projects. I'll be touring in Spain with my buddy Kurt Baker in a few weeks. Really looking forward to that. Do we have any Spanish listeners? I can't remember. Um, But if so, hit me up. Love to say hello. And uh, before I forget, I wanted to mention that I saw Al Jardine perform a few weeks ago at the City Winery here in Nashville, and it was awesome. Just a five-piece band, uh, Al and Matt Jardine, Debbie Cher, and uh, the real treat for me was seeing longtime Beach Boys band members Ed Carter and Bobby Figueroa. Really great set list. Al sounded good. I was really glad that I went. And... um, I got to say hello to a bunch of you guys, our listeners and patrons, so that's always a plus. Really, really good times. And uh, yeah, so we got a big show today, more 2020 sessionography, but before that, uh, one piece of news I wanted to mention. Grammy Salute to the Beach Boys, latest in a series of Grammy Salute specials, will tape Wednesday, February 8th, three days after the 65th Annual Grammy Awards. The live concert special will feature John Legend, Brandy Carlisle, St. Vincent, Beck, Fallout Boy, Mumford & Sons, Weezer, Charlie Puth, Leanne Rimes, My Morning Jacket, Nora Jones, Pentatonix, Lady A, and more. Paying tribute to the Beach Boys, it will tape at the Dolby Theater in Hollywood, and it will air on CBS later this year. So I was going to try and go to this, but I have so much going on, I'm not going to be able to make it. But we are going to have our correspondent, Nia D'Amelio, there. And uh, I have a feeling that she will come back with a full unhinged report of her experience you can hear 
all of Nia's concert reviews, rants, and raves over at the Salon Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Salon. There's a link in the show notes. I would like to recognize some of the newest supporters right now. Pat G, Joseph Shack, Jack Jack, Sam Moser, Mike K, Campbell Ford, Peter Petto, Tristan Nieto, Jason Woodburn, Tino Castelluccio, P. Hutchinson, Jennifer Odom, and Peter Duckworth. You guys are awesome. Thank you for keeping the show ad-free and running strong. We really appreciate it. We love you! And with that being said, let's get back into the 2020 sessions with Will Cura and John Brody. Hey guys, we're back to talk more about the album 2020. Um, last time we talked, we sort of went through the summer of 68 and all of the songs that Brian worked on with the group while he was sort of leading the album, which ended with uh, an, an attempted single with Can't Wait Too Long or Been Way Too Long. And um, that song never got put together. And so the Beach Boys went back out on tour. And uh, here we are. You're going out tonight. You put your real cool looking clothes on. Getting... We returned to the Beach Boys recording world on August 29th with a few demos of some original songs by Dennis with uh, Carl in attendance. And he's got a few new songs here. I think only one of these didn't get released, but the rest are out on that. 1968 I Can Hear Music release. Mm. Uh, Love Affair, Be With Me, and Peaches. This is like kind of the first time, I mean, you know, there's, there's Little Bird and Be Still. And then as well as that, there was also that thing he did with Charles Manson, um, the Well You Know I Knew. But this is kind of like the first stockpile of like new songs that Dennis has come up with on his own. So it's, it's sort of important for that reason. This is kind of like the first time he's come in with a whole batch of like new original songs, and they're sort of like fragmentary and not finished. But it's basically him, Desper, and Carl uh, just running through these in the studio um, for the first time. And he did four songs. The first one was just basically the the chord progression of, of uh, "Time to Live in Dreams," which wasn't on the box set, but uh, there was no vocal for that. He just played it on the piano. And then afterwards, mm. there was um, like a sort of demo of "Be Still," no, not "Be Still," sorry, "Be With Me," with um, some of the lyrics not quite finished. It's kind of neat. It's, it's the, I mean, it's just sort of that. It's kind of a crucial moment in Dennis's development as a songwriter. Yeah, "Be with Me" here is different. Different lyrics. He doesn't know what to do with the end of the song. Uh, "Peaches" is something that he'll reuse in "Never Learn Not to Love." He reuses the bridge section there, and oh, and that song itself is sort of a finished version of all those tracks he did in late '67 and early '68. Tune L or yeah. whatever it was called then. Yeah, and then, and then later on it got turned into Before in uh, 1971, as well as the Neverland Not to Love, sort of little chorus thing in there. Yeah. So it was sort of like, it sort of grew out of these two tracks he'd done earlier, and then it sort of got turned into different things later as well. And this is one thing that was called Love Affair, but I don't think it had a title at the time. But it's like just the most, like, sort of, it just sounds like 
sort of less good version of B still. No, sorry, Be With Me, I keep getting those two titles mixed up. It's like, we'll start <laughs> with B. It's um, really similar, and you can tell, I mean, it makes sense why I didn't record this one, but it's it's quite pretty chord progression, but it's like a very similar mood to Be With Me. And it doesn't, it doesn't have many lyrics and doesn't go very far, and it's like very sort of typical, like, if you could sort of just like flanderize Dennis Wilson lyrics, that, that's what this is. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's, it's an interesting little stepping stone in, in, you know, the story of Dennis becoming a, a really good songwriter. And it's sort of his, his first, you know, batch of songs that weren't just ideas. And some of them still are, but you get the sense that he's he's trying to become what Brian was and what, you know, especially in the wake mm. of Brian not contributing as much. Yeah. And um, so so that's sort of like, they, they've taken some time off from recording because they were on tour and then they come back at the end of August and do that. And then not very far into September, they sort of begin recording again, like a sort of reboot of the album, kind of. Like they start over with something and then they're doing quite a lot of new material at this point with different members of the group contributing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it starts off on September 3rd with a new version of We're Together Again, the Ron Wilson song. And we should um, drop in some extra Ron Wilson trivia that we've found out in the meantime. It just keeps coming like an avalanche of, of Ron Wilson facts. Um, yes. Thanks again to Pat who found out a lot of that stuff about Ron Wilson in the last episode that we presented. He went and dug up some more newspaper articles and and put them in the Ceylon Discord server. And uh, one thing that uh, we were able to confirm was that the Beach Boys did record that first one as a single before they got the idea to do do it again. So that was yeah. almost the next Beach Boys hit single. And it um, might have- well probably wouldn't have been a big hit like do it again but mm. what were you gonna say and then it, and uh, yeah i was just gonna say on the second version I mean, they might have been doing this as a single again because brian didn't end up finishing been way too long and then yeah apparently, apparently in the second version uh, murray wilson's name is like all over the tape box in like a few different places so i think that's i don't think that's because murray like directly produced it because it doesn't sound like a, anything that he would have um done but i think he was like it was his investment in the song that was the reason they were recording it. I think Murray was like really pushing for them to do this thing as a single. So that's probably the reason they went in and did a whole other version of it. Even though the other one was con- considered finished, this one is a bit more of an ambitious, ambitious production with some more session people instead of just the Beach Boys playing on it. Um, yeah. And it's got this sort of um, country tinged arrangement, which is interesting. Brian sort of, you know, he's done a little bit of that with When, when a Man Needs a Woman and he's do a few more things in the next sort of couple of years that sort of have these country influences to them and this is another sort of maybe like sort of the most explicit version of that um so it's, it's a lot of session people this time it's not just the beach boys playing on it it's um mike rubini's playing the piano jim ackley who's the friends keyboard guy he's playing the roxichord Al- alvis Govo's playing a, a guitar that's not very prominent john gurin the dude again drummer's on there uh, alan Estes is playing a marimba which is sort of just doing these little sort of like parts um that i'm pretty sure is the reason bruce did that on bluebirds over the mountain because it's like the same sort of thing like i have a i have a feeling bruce mm. copped it from this to make it sound beach boysy and it was like a recent sort of brian thing um and then carl was on the session as well and i guess he must have been on bass because um just that spot's empty also sounds like there's an upright bass on this but like i've you know don't know who would have played that i don't know if it would have been a session guy who was paid at a later date like Lara Ritz who was on Never Learn Not To Love or if it would have been one of the Beach Boys but it sounds like there are two bases on this thing um, 
again, similar sort of track, just with converted to session people. Um, and then John Gurren played some extra percussion at this point because he was paid for some other things that were apparently taped over later. And then at, the, at some other sessions, they really sort of went in on the country influence with um, James Burton, who was on Cabin Essence playing the dobro. He uh, played a dobro again on this thing, as well as uh, Red Rhodes, the famous steel guitar player, added, um, well, steel guitar on this, um, plus this sort of like fuzzed out thing in, in the fade out, which uh, is, you can only really hear on the, some of the bootleg mixes, but um, that's basically the instrumental track. Um, and also, oh yeah, there's also some strings as well, one of those overdub sessions, which are like pretty simple parts, just in sort of 68 Brian mode. Um, this was credited produced by Murray Wilson on the official release because of Murray's name being all over the, all over the tape box. But um, it, I don't think that's the case. I mean, I don't think the session's actually been listened to for this, but it seems like it was a Brian production or maybe Brian and Carl, but it's like a very typical arrangement um, for him. And he was still, you know, singing on it at this point. Yeah, I wonder why they didn't release either version of this song. The first one was pretty much complete and this one was, was close. It just needed a, a lead vocal really um but maybe they were trying to get away from you know murray's influence on the group or yeah or something I, like that yeah i mean i mean i think steve desper said something like that to the effect of like murray would come in and they kind of do things to make him happy but they would kind of try and resist mm-hmm. anything when he tried to push them into it so this was a case of like brian he didn't know why he didn't come out and brian was the one who discovered ron wilson i think he probably would have been behind wanting to get it out there yeah. but maybe some of the others weren't so happy so keen on like kind of doing this Murray project with, um, you know, the royalties going to another songwriter. Uh, yeah, Steve Desper said something similar about Soulful Old Man Sunshine, that the group would work on it, and but they actually didn't really want to release it, and it was just a whole, you know, political family thing, and that's why that didn't come out. So yeah, maybe similar situation here, uh, but poor Ron Wilson. I mean, he had his song recorded twice by the Beach Boys, and didn't come out as a single either time. And um, another thing Pat found out is that he and Brian wanted to do an, a, a full album together on Columbia. Yeah, it's kind of it's crazy. And <laughs> that never happened. It, <laughs> all that came out of this was just a, a a single for Ron on Columbia that went nowhere. Probably got zero, you know, radio play. Uh, and that that's essentially it. So this song was worked on for about a week and a half before they moved on to a song called Never Learn Not to Love. Obviously, this is a a reworking of a Charles Manson song. I think most people know that by now. Yeah, it used to exist, which apparently it's on the Lie album. And apparently, I don't know how true this is, but I've heard that... um, Manson wrote this for the Beach Boys like he wanted this to be a song that the Beach Boys recorded it wasn't just a random thing that he had that Dennis reworked I don't know how true that is but I've, it's definitely something I've read before and I probably should have like done some more research before this episode but oh well <laughs> um, but anyway yeah Dennis sort of took this thing and like completely reworked it I mean he, some of the basic melody and, and lyric ideas are there but it's it's a very different song you know it's got n- different chords behind it different rhythm the melody's different it was this sort of like I think it's a, I mean I think the original Charles Manson one is like a piece of shit, but it's it's like it's like the sort of generic acoustic blues type thing, sort of rambling. And Dennis made it into like a really cool kind of um, pop song. 
And he also threw in that chorus that he had from Peaches as well. That's a completely original Dennis piece of music. I actually love this song. It's a great little production. Uh, it has, you know, a great vocal by Dennis. I think that's the strongest thing about it. Yeah. Um, if you, yeah, if you listen to that Charles Manson original, I mean, I can't blame you for not really wanting to research this guy's music. It's not. <laughs> it's not as great. Uh, as what the Beach Boys were doing. There's a really weird sort of cult of people who are like convinced that it, it it's good. So, I mean, just because of the whole, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I think it's like an edgy thing to to say you like Charles Manson's album, but I don't. It's you know, look at your game. Yeah, game. It's kind I mean, of nice. That's the one song that I think is kind of okay, and then the rest yeah. are like, no, yeah. <laughs> I mean, people were interested in him as a as a musician and an artist, but he wasn't. I mean, kind of. Um, I, I, you know. I, I, I think the problem, they, the reason he never got anywhere is he just sounded like every other sort of singer-songwriter um, doing well, sort of bluesy acoustic things. He wasn't really exceptional, but Dennis yeah, kind of Yeah, and I can imagine there were other reasons why he never... Yeah. Probably other reasons why he didn't get anywhere. True. Yeah, <laughs> I, not, true. I, I know he had other good reasons as well. <laughs> <laughs> he was not really the nicest guy or the easiest guy to work with, uh, but he was... He definitely advocated for himself. Um, yeah. He got... I mean, he got some stuff recorded at the beach boys house so mm. that's something <laughs> something yeah um, so uh, let's talk about the track because i think um can't confirm this just yet but like from various digging i'm pretty sure there were two different attempts at this track one on september 11th which started out with dennis on piano and colin guitar and then they added some overdubs to that like organ piano and fuzz guitar and stuff and then they sort of ditched it and then it seems like they did like a new attempt at the track on um, September 16th or 17th, which this time had a few session people in it. It just started out again with piano and bass, and then they sort of added to it and changed things and replaced things. Without hearing the session, it's kind of hard to like tell what was done. But mm-hmm. um, as well as Dennis and Carl being on this, they also brought in Don Randy, who played um, organ and apparently piano. Um, there's Lyle Ritz playing upright bass, and there's also John Gurin on... Um, the drums and percussion and the drums on this are really interesting i think they're kind of this this production always feels quite briny to me it was dennis and carl mm-hmm. working on this together without brian but you know it doesn't sort of have like normal drumming it's just got like a, a, a floor tom that's sort of just thumping away in the background with yeah um sleigh bells and stuff which feels like a very sort of like orchestrated sort of approach to this thing yeah with with these productions that the beach boys start to do without brian as he's slowly pulling away you can really really hear his influence especially with the latest stuff he was doing um Mm. on the other members because basically the the way they learned how to produce music was through being around and watching and working with brian while he was producing songs and being musicians on that material themselves so they developed their own sort of styles later but this really kind of it's not far away from the sort of thing brian was doing in 68 it's there are, I mean, it's obviously very Dennis-y, it's a bit heavier than that sort of thing, but there are like certain production touches and sort of the way he's going about arranging it that are quite similar. Mm-hmm. The fuzz guitar and all that sort of thing, you know, there's fuzz on Can't Wait Too Long and it's a similar sort of sound. And the sleigh bells. Yeah, and then we have the vocals, which uh, Brian did participate in. Yeah, but Brian apparently, and Carl apparently, according to Steve Desper, I'm not sure how that works, but apparently... Um, Brian did arrange the vocals on this thing, even though he wasn't part of the track, and it's the entire group singing on this. Uh, Brian isn't like as obvious as normal, uh, like immediately, because he's sort of hidden in the middle. He's not like singing the top parts. Mm. He's normally is. So he's still singing kind of high, but like everything's voiced pretty high up. And then Bruce and Al are the ones who are doing the 
like highest parts there. And yeah, this is this is a really cool vocal arrangement. It's um, very Beach Boysy. I think it's these the other these other new songs that they worked on in the fall of '68 didn't have Brian's active sort of participation in the vocals in the same way that this one did. And this one really feels like a Beach Boys song. I think more than some of the others because of Brian's in there doing some sort of creative vocal things um, and the sort of typical sort of four part harmonies. They added like two tracks of vocals, and then on, on a third track they added some sort of extra parts that are kind of weaving in and out of the originals and then um, mm -hmm. that's all of them in the fade out singing together and then obviously Dennis has his lead vocal as well which is probably his most impressive vocal performance on a Beach Boys song at this point Come Yeah it's um, I love when he, he reaches for those high notes and he just kind of yells him out because I think he sounds best in that sort of range. Yeah. It's like yeah. a more mature version of what he was doing at the end of In the Back of My Mind a few years before this. And that's something that he'll continue to do when his, as his music is uh, becomes stronger over the next few years. Again, this is... Um, he's, he's still learning as a songwriter. And those other songs that he had written were, were pretty fragmentary. And this is sort of him doing to Charles Manson what Brian did Dennis on Little Bird, which is just taking an idea of a song and, you know, using some other pieces that he had written in other songs to string something together that, that made sense. And I think this is, out of all the Dennis tracks on 2020, I think this is his best work. Me too. Yeah. I, you know, despite the whole the whole Manson connection. Um, and he would do something similar on, on another song we'll talk about today. Yeah. Um, um, oh, it's well, another thing about the track as well. There are some saxes and flutes on this thing as well that are again kind of briny, mm -hmm. um, especially the saxes, like doing the sort of these baritone saxes doing the sort of like kind of fuzzy thing, sort of just droning away through it. And then there's some violins on there as well, which I think are a little bit more typical of the sort of thing Dennis would do. Like they're like playing sort of you know Brian was sort of had a thing against um, instruments playing at like the top of the registers, but these violins sort of soar up and have these sort of like you know really high sort of piercing accents to the the choruses when they rise up that well, isn't a very Brian thing but Dennis would sort of take advantage of that sort of thing more often yeah and and like you said the saxes are doing something that um, you know they're just doing that low droning sound which is something that was so important to Brian hmm. uh, having enough low end in, a, in an arrangement uh, yeah so there's all these small little things that you know Dennis and Carl were were picking up on from from Brian. Uh, so yeah, and never then, learn not to love. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say then. Yeah, and then they um, they mix it down to mono, and they, this was going to be a single. I think there are a lot of sort of planned singles from the 2020 sessions. <laughs> if you think about you know where together again as well as maybe being a potential one and been way too long, they were going for a lot of different options. They had I can hear music. They had time to get alone, which we'll talk about soon. Um, they had this and they also had Bluebirds Over the Mountain and they went with a, which, what I think was probably the worst one as the, as the single but hey, that's subjective um, but yeah, it looks like for a while they were thinking about having this as a single because they did like a mono mix of it and then it ended up as the B-side to Bluebirds So, after this period we have a finished version of Never Learn Not to Love and an abandoned second attempt at Work Together Again the Beach Boys go out for a few more dates um, and then when they come back, they work on a few more songs, and the first one is I Can Hear Music, a cover of the 
you know, Phil Spector classic uh, led by Carl and without Brian. Yeah, this is the first sort of major Beach Boys production. I mean, there's been a few other little things, like with a little help from my friends, and to an extent, some things like, um, what's the Stevie Wonder one? Um, I was made to lover. Um, but this is the first time that there's been like a proper, like extensive Beach Boys production with everybody else working on it that Brian hasn't been part of. Um, this is Carl. Was it was Carl's idea to do the song, and he was the one who produced it. And um, it's it's really kind of like a turning point. It's the first one that the first big one that Brian didn't sing on as well as well as not being part of the instrumental track. Like Never Learn Not to Love, he was completely absent from this one. He was upstairs in his bedroom while they were recording it, which was the first time that that really happened. Where you know they phoned him on the intercom to try and get him to come down, and he thought he was just like you know it sounds good, so you keep doing it. Um, which obviously is is a big thing at this point. It became quite commonplace in a few years down the line. Um, but at this point, it's it's an unusual thing for Brian to be avoiding recording sessions like this. It's sort of like he's made a conscious break at this point from the Beach Boys. Like for the next few months, he comes in and does things here and there where he can. But it's he sort of until late '69 when they were getting that contract going for a reprise, and when Breakaway happened, he, he sort of like quit making music full time the way he had been. He was sort of decided to sort mm-hmm. of you know for various whatever his reasons were, he sort of went into an early semi-retirement for a while, where he was doing it as a hobby, but not actively wanting to be part of the group. Um, there's a there's a bunch of footage. If you look up the music video for this song, I think people assumed for a while that it was the group working on "Time to Get Alone" because they did um, shoot some some scenes where they're lip-syncing to it. But um, this is this is footage of the home studio, which is very very rare, and this is pretty much all we see of the home studio until the sunflower era where there's some a few more photos um but yeah this is the, that's the whole group working on on i can hear music without without brian and he was probably just upstairs um you know in the bedroom or wherever he was yeah so this is october 1st is when they started recording it and then we don't have session dates for all the things afterwards because it's clear that they worked on this worked on this song for about like three or four different sessions we just have the date for when they started it um and the track's quite an unusual lineup as well the early takes which are bootlegged you can hear it's um dennis playing the tack piano bruce is on fender Rhodes. they must have you know hired these different keyboards for this home studio at this point because they didn't use these things often i was playing acoustic guitar Carl's on drums for these early takes for some reason, even though Dennis is right there in the room. And there's also another drummer in the room as well, because you've got Mike Kowalski here, which who was um, a friend of Ed Carter, and I can't exactly remember how the whole association with um, with them sort of being added into the group came about, but he was part of the touring unit at this point, and this is the first um, time they, he was... They both worked with Bruce a lot in the early 60s, Yeah, yeah, his, that, uh, his Beach yeah. Boys days. So, that, and Bruce produced a thing for Red Carter early in 68, didn't he, as well? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so, so that's how they came in, and this is the first time he was in the studio with them. And Mike Kowalski, he's kind of... Um, he did a lot of live stuff, he wasn't on a lot of studio things for the next few years, but he sort of had a start out with some of the 2020 sessions, and then obviously he was all over MIU and the Celebration stuff, and then he's played with the Beach Boys for like a long, long time after that. So he was here shaking the sleigh bells. Um, and then they sort of had a, a lineup shifter up for the final takes, which um, the tack piano is still there, but now there's organ bass pedals instead of the Fender Rhodes. 
Carl and Al are both playing acoustic guitars and Mike Kowalski was on the drums for um, a sort of guide part that ended up being taped over. And then they added some extra sort of overdubs onto this thing, that some of which didn't end up being used in the final cut, like they kind of dubbed it down and changed some things and added new vocals, but there was um, bass added, probably Carl, and then there's an electric guitar that seems like it might have been out because of the, the footage. And then they replaced the drums with this sort of like big delayed echo flap like drum thing that by watching the footage it seems like what was happening was a kind of like group thing doing this like Dennis is like hitting the snare and floor tom at the same time and Carl's like whacking the kick drum which is um, something Brian likes to do sometimes he'd sort of hit it with sticks and then the sleigh bells in that track as well um, and they also did like Carl did an early attempt on the lead vocal and they did a sort of scratch attempt at backing vocals on here that didn't get used and that's where like at, the, at that point the alternate mix on the digital box that is what was the song was at this point mm-hmm. yeah so this backing track is is totally like just the just the beach boys and mike kowalski without brian sort mm. of piecing together you know bit by bit a, a sort of attempt at a, a specter production and the way it sounds mixed in with the with the reverb they used uh when they mixed it really really kind of makes it sound a lot like what Brian was doing. So there, there's really no, um, like Carl's productions would later have their own sort of identity to them and sound very different to what Brian was doing. But he and Dennis were very much influenced by what Brian was doing. And that's pretty much what they're attempting to do with, with most of the material in 2020. Yeah. But and that's definitely like, there's not here. really much of an, yeah, there's there's not really much of an arrangement here though. I mean, they've got it's mm-hmm. kind of just a sort of big wall of rhythm. Like it's not really like yeah, and it's it, because of the way it was recorded. I don't know what St- Steve Desper did here, like to make it sound so big, but it sounds like a lot bigger than it is. Like you've really only got like there's only one acoustic guitar at the start, and then Alice comes in a bit later because they taped over some of it. Um, but it's just a couple of acoustic guitars, like a tack piano, and then bass, and then the big drum thing, and you know the percussion as well. But it, it somehow manages to sound like massive. And then yeah, it's it's that it's that um, capital tower reverb, which um, is actually a, a reverb that Brian didn't like at all. Yeah, and, yeah, which was a big part of why he he stopped recording there. And then as well, they oh, use what they uh, dubbed it down a, a second generation tape, and then kind of got rid of some things. They ditched the electric guitar and the vocals they'd done so far, and they yeah, added some more percussion. That the um, the video footage they took in um, Brian's house kind of it gives away who was doing what in some of these cases. And it's interesting because on the percussion overdub, you've got Dennis playing the sleigh, uh, sleigh bells and Mike is playing a tambourine at the same time. They're like adding extra sleigh bell parts and then Mike's on there with um, a tambourine. And it's just, you know, it's it's just funny to consider Mike playing instruments in the studio because you never would assume it was him, you know, because Carl was there as well, apparently in the booth. But, you know, Mike was a proficient tambourine, tambourine man on stage. So, like, why not, I guess? <laughs> it's It's just these sort of... All little things that we never would have found out if there wasn't film of them doing it. And the the vocals on this song, all done without Brian again. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's uh, Bruce apparently arranged um, all the harmony parts, and mm-hmm. that was his first big Beach Boys vocal arrangement, first of many, um, in place of Brian. And Carl's lead on this song, I think, is one of his best ever. I mean, he just sounds incredible i think i think that's a big part of why i like this song because like you said there's not really much interesting going on production wise but 
he just sounds incredible and and so do the harmonies it's so good I think Carl in late 68 is like sort of my favorite version of Carl because it's kind of like he's halfway between his younger sort of shinier voice that he had on God Only Knows and it's but he's also got sort of he's a he's a lot he's a much better singer at this point and it's not quite into that sort of mature style that he developed sort of around Sunflower but he's still got kind of that mm-hmm. youthful thing, thing about him while still yeah totally you know growing a lot as a singer um so yeah it's an, an incredibly vocal I think Ronnie Spector said that this was like the definitive version of the song as well even better than the original um, mm. And like it's because of Carl that that is because his vocal on it is just so good, um, and the rest of the group sound really good on this as well. It's just kind of just a sort of bed of ooze behind it, um, simple but they sound really good. Um, Al's doing all the high parts in this one because he was their go-to substitute Brian on stage, and Alan Bruce kind of sing a harmony with um, Carl in the chorus. And then I think the most impressive part of the vocal arrangement is sort of like it's, it's obviously the acapella breakdown thing towards the end, which is like a very ambitious thing to try and do without Brian but it's a like a really good vocal moment um, it's a great arrangement and everyone sounds amazing on this thing and you have Mike doing that do re mi fa so la ti do yeah thing. so brilliant and, and Mike came up with that as well that was Mike's idea he liked to contribute his own sort of bass hooks to this and it's such a mm-hmm. I, I love his bass part that so much I hear the music all the time yeah I hear the music all the time now baby Yeah, so this um, was worked on. They were still kind of looking around to see what song was, I think, going to work for them as as their next single. Mm. And, you know, it was Weird Together Again um, before Do It Again, and and it looks like they were bringing that back, but Brian didn't finish it. Never Learn Not to Love is done. Um, But I think they were thinking about putting out this one. They eventually did. As a as a third single for 2020, yeah. Okay, so the next song they worked on uh, right around this time, actually the next day after they they started, I can hear music was "Be with Me," which has a very similar sort of you know production style to "Never Learn Not to Love." It's got the very Brian Wilson like wall of sound kind of thing that Dennis was learning from him yeah so, so this track is um, at its core it's got kind of a simple rhythm section it's got Dennis on the piano it always feels wrong to me when someone else is playing uh, Brian's detune chicker in that's like such an iconic Brian instrument <laughs> but at this point you, you were starting to get everybody else using the studio and it's, it's you know Dennis is playing it and it's like oh well, that's, something's not quite right there um, <laughs> Bruce is playing the Fender Rhodes Ed Carter has his first appearance on a Beach Boys session he's playing a rhythm guitar on this Mike Kowalski's on drums as well. 
but uh, there's also a lot of session people on here, but and most of them are just um, horn players. It's um, Jimmy Bond is playing the upright bass, and other than that, everyone here is um, like a woodwind or horn player. Uh, Roger Newman was a guy in the touring group that Dennis collaborated with on a few of these productions around this time, and th- it's, I think he did the arrangements of the horns at this point. Dennis mm-hmm. probably had some suggestions, but this is really kind of like, you know, Little Bird is such a Brian production. I think this is the first one where Dennis kind of finds an identity as um, a sort of hint towards what his style is going to be. It's very grandiose. It's it's big. It's maximalist. It's kind of like it's heavy and emotional the way he was. It's it's not subtle at all. It's kind of just it's all out there um, in a sort yeah. of grand way and very different to what Brian would have done. I mean, it's. Um, it's been described as pet soundsy, but I don't think of that at all. You know, to me, this is more kind of like it's it's very Dennis's own thing. It doesn't sound much like a like a Brian production at all to me. Um, and on this, you've got like I I don't know. We need to go over the horn arrangement and work out exactly what's on there. But they did like some overdubs as well. I know that um, there were some saxes on there, trumpets, horns. Um, trombones and then as well Roger Newman ended up playing a few different things he played like a flute a piccolo and a fife which is um, I don't think there's ever been a fife on another Beach Boys song and there's some sleigh bells in this one as well you know sleigh bells have to be on everything <laughs> that's like the unifying thing between all these tracks the arrangement is like so everything going at once that it doesn't really grab me in the way that a lot of Brian's things do like there's not that sense of dynamics in there because it's so huge but it's um, it's definitely an impressive track and it's the first big thing that Dennis has attempted that you know, he didn't work on this with Carl. This is all Dennis, um, Dennis's production. And Dennis also did all the vocals in this as well. He did the vocals about you know, a month and a bit later after being away from LA. But when he came back, Dennis sings the lead vocals and then he does kind yeah. of some harmonies with himself in the chorus. And it gets really freaky. <laughs> it does. Um, yeah, I like what you said about it's a it's a pretty dramatic song. You kind of don't get that from his demo, but you, yeah. you do get it here, and it's it reflects a very different, you know. He he's still you know instrumentation wise sort of, you know, using a few of Brian's tools, but goes about it in a much more dramatic, over the top way, mm. and uh, that's very reflective of <laughs> Dennis as a person compared to Brian, uh, who is much more, you know quiet and subtle yeah but um one thing i i I do like the sound of this song one thing that never really clicked with me was the the lyrics and the chorus yeah me too uh you have a you have a chorus and it just kind of sounds like dennis making stuff up on the spot you Mm. know it's it sounds like himself um, and it's not catchy at all in the demo he was kind of making things up on the spot and here he's kind of like hasn't got beyond that um yeah, it's it's like he he knows how to start songs and finish other people's songs, but th- this which this song which is, you know, him front to back writing and completing it is um I don't know. There's definitely something that could have been done differently there that I think would have made the song stick more because when I think of the song, yeah. I I think of, you know, the opening lines and stuff, but the uh parts where he's just yelling free just <laughs> don't really stick with me yeah um the vocal melody is isn't really nice though. the verses are nice and dennis's vocal sounds really good on this he's um he's, he's double tracked and then there's one point where he's like um it could set us free and then on the other track he sings it could set you free or whatever it was like you know he, yeah. he sings like two different words at the same time and that could be pointed out as a mistake but i think that's like a nice 
touch. I like to think that was somewhat intentional. Um, yeah, he's he. There's some rumors as well. Really, that, sorry, that, go ahead. Sorry, I was just gonna say there's some rumors as well that Manson contributed to the lyrics of, of this one unofficially, because this um, I, I don't know how true that is, but apparently Dennis had some sort of like two-song deal with Manson. And you know, in the demo, Dennis mm-hmm. hasn't finished the lyrics, and here there are some more lyrics, and they're kind of like off-putting and disjointed. So I, I don't know. I don't want to say that like definitively that's what happened, but it is something that I've seen rumored before, and it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case, because they are kind of creepy, <laughs> and it's kind of a creepy song. Yeah, I mean, the first part of it is like a love song, which is what Dennis had originally, and then there's, you know, the verse about a baby being born. Yeah. <laughs> and and the mo- the mother is still waiting and father's over there anticipating and it's like what what is what what is this song about I know, Dennis it's, yeah it's it really kind of falls goes in a strange direction <laughs> it doesn't really resolve itself um, the extra thing so and, the- and with all the other songs sorry with with all the other songs being collaborations with with other people uh, including Manson and and that whole thing I I wouldn't yeah I wouldn't be surprised if this is something that he asked. For a bit of lyrical input on and and the 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 freaky you know yelling in the chorus and that sounds like something that that if manson did contribute to this song it probably would have been been those parts yeah and um an extra thing about the track is this uh, with this as well is soon after they went to new york for a while to record which we'll talk about soon um because it was the first time, apart from one session in um, Nashville, it was the first time they'd ever recorded outside of California. These um, a few sessions in New York in October '68. Um, but while they were over there, they got together with Van McCoy, the um, you know quite high-profile string arranger. I think Bruce knew him somehow, because uh, Bruce has all these connections. And um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, so he ended up doing string arrangements for a few of the songs. He did "Near as Far Away Place." Um, be with me and then sort of a small thing on the end of um, bluebirds over the mountain that we're going to get to soon and the string arrangement for this is really creepy i mean bruce said that the way they did it was they would kind of like convey their arrangement ideas to him who'd, who'd actually score it so it wasn't just you know giving it to an arranger and having them do it they were kind of like singing their ideas to him and i think bruce probably did have some input into this as well because you know what does dennis know about strings at this point um but th- these parts sound yeah. kind of consciously influenced by time to get alone to me i mean that's what i've always got to them that's sort of the slide up to the highest note but in the fade out they're sort of just like kind of sliding up and down in this really like to the the top of their instruments range and in a sort of creepy like you know with dennis kind of screaming in the distance and it gets all echoey and it's and then they end up with the cellos alone and it's probably it's like the scariest ending to a beach boy song that has been so far yeah because as, as it's fading out dennis just starts screaming and and laughing really loud but <laughs> But it's it's getting softer and quieter, and then there's yeah. all that reverb and yeah, even you know without the potential Charles Manson connection, it's a weird, freaky song, <laughs> and you know, kind of everything Dennis was doing kind of sounds that way. But yeah, I mean, they tried to make it even more freaky as well by this um, when they were doing the mix down in November at Capitol. They also recorded this like spoken words thing called a uh, fig plucker and it's not hard oh, to, yeah it's not hard to figure out what that's a play on words for and then um well i guess we'll just play it because like well i don't know what this thing is but i guess there would there was maybe an idea to mix this into the end of the song or something or it's just done for fun on the spot um beach boys in 68 are weird 
Then I did it too. Everyone years. together in there. Everyone, now, here we go. One, two, three, go. Uh, I'm not I'm the, the fig plucker nor the fig plucker son, son, but I'll pluck figs till the fig plucker comes. <laughs> yeah, and it's another uh, example of Charles Manson's influence on the group. Yeah, so we've done the scary song, and now we need to get back to a comfy song. So we're going <laughs> to go back to Time to Get Alone, the thing that they recorded for Redwoods, aka Three Dog Night in 67, and then it became a Beach Boys song, and now it's been a year, and it's going to be a Beach Boys song once again. This is, of course, a song brought back from the Wild Honey era, and um, the backing track is, uh, is reused. And they're going to start over with all the vocals. So they took this song over to ID Sound, uh, where a lot of the vocals for the Friends album were done. And um, I guess we'll talk about all the harmony parts because I mean we've already talked about the backing track. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, yeah. So, so they um, they did some lead vocals when it was going to be a thing for Wild Honey, and Brian had rewritten the lyrics already from when it was going to be a Three Dog Night song. Um, and here it's obviously you'd had some time away from it. He said in that record collector interview in the 90s that it sounded too plastic to him. So he put it away for a year and then got it back out again. So he just wasn't happy with the way the song felt. But evidently he'd had some time to think about, you know, the track and come up with some <laughs> new ideas. And there was that go at rewriting it in the Friends era that um, produced a sort of rough track, but they didn't end up doing anything with that. So now, so now he's coming back to this thing and they're tr- going to do it as a single and they're sort of doing it as like a full Beach Boy approach to the vocals this time. Um, and the, the first thing they do is they dub it down from the original tape to free up some more tracks. And um, onto that, they basically, they didn't edit to get rid of the instrumental break in the middle of it, which I guess Brian wasn't happy with. Um, so they just chopped that out and now it's a shorter song. And then from there, they did some backing vocals, which seemed to just be um, the four, like the full freshman crew on this. It's just Brian, Al, Carl and Mike doing everything on here. Um, so, do you want to talk about the harmony parts? Uh, yeah. So they sang these these harmonies in the in the choruses uh, with Mike doing this really really cool low bass part. I re- I really love Mike's backing parts around this era. By the way, they're just so great. Me too. Yeah. Um, and once again, like Never Learn Not to Love, Brian is sort of taking a, a middle part in the harmony stacks and letting Al take the top part and actually Carl's above him too so he's he's only one part above Mike he's, uh, yeah, so his voice isn't he's sort of super uh, yeah his voice isn't as prominent as it is in, in other songs because it doesn't have that that high Brian Wilson whine to it he's just mm, sort of he's, singing he's, as another harmony singer he's not as distinct when he sings lower down he's, he's kind of an anonymous sound when he's singing no, in the group yeah um, but I think he sounds a lot like Carl, and he, he is taking what what would usually would be Carl's part, part really. in the in the stack. I was on the high part, and I think he probably intentionally wanted Al up there to have a sort of softer sound to the high thing because it's there's a lot of vocal parts in this song, and these vocals that you can hear probably most clearly in the Hawthorne uh, California mix in 2001, which was sort of combined with the Wild Honey vocals. They uh, synced up the tapes for that. They're sort of, you know, they're, they're most prominently in the background there, but when they added more things, these are sort of very subliminal and far off in the, ba- far off in the background, very soft. Um, so you've got the four of them uh, doing these sort of descending sort of R's. Um, sorry, not, well, Mike's bass part goes down, and then they um, come together on the title line at the end. 
But then instead of sort of doing a straight double of this on another track, Mike doubled his pop, and then the three of them do the sort of like unison like ba 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 thing. Um, that's obviously not it, but <laughs> and then um, so so yeah, <laughs> so they're kind of changing the parts on a different track for this, and then uh, they also did some vocals in the verses, which are like really pretty. Yeah, and that's that's again Alan. It's three parts now, Alan Carl. Uh, singing the the top top harmony together, Brian in the middle, and then Mike doing the bass part. Mm. And yeah, Mike's Mike's voice is very pronounced on these harmonies. Uh, they were probably doing the whole second microphone thing and mm. that ID sound that they did on the on the early hits. But really, really, really pretty harmonies. Really pretty vocal arrangement. Yeah, the, the, my favorite part of the vocals is these verse back and back and vocals. Yeah, it's, there's um, a lot of. It's it's very classic Beach Boys, you know, overlapping melodies, and it's it's just really great. Um, so so then with those parts complete, they dubbed it down to another tape again, which is um, just to, you know, because there are so many vocal parts in this song that they had to free up space. And what they did is they basically mixed it down to stereo on two tracks by combining like all of the track into mono in the middle, and the back and vocals so far were mixed into stereo. Which I don't really know why they did that, but it meant the final song ended up having like a track that's mono and all the vocals surrounding it. They didn't need to do that, but they sort of made a conscious choice to do that, probably because Brian was in the room, um, taking charge on this thing. Yeah, and and Steve Desper was getting more experimental with his his mixed down techniques, but. Yeah, the the mono track is a little bit weird. Yeah, I've, I we still haven't got like a full remix with the twenty twenty vocals and a stereo backing track, which is a shame. But you know, it, it's not too much of a loss. Um, and they they also separated out some of the instruments in the bridge. So when you get to that part and the strings, those are are on a second track that's kind of um, mixed with some reverb to make it sound sort of stereo-y. Um, so so then on top of this, they started adding some more vocals. Um, Al Collins, Brian again, the three of them double tracked that sort of ba 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 thing in the chorus and then um brian got uh, marilyn and diane to sing on a beach boys thing for the first time in quite a long time and they have their own sort of unique part in the chorus this sort of nice sort of climbing melody and brian's also singing with them as well in unison kind of quietly in the background come do a couple days just a ways away from the Brian hasn't really used Marilyn and Diane in, in this way before in a Beach Boys song since maybe Beach Treaty is cool. When, you know, they were playing the role of the cheerleaders, this point he's like sort of consciously calling for kind of female voices to offset the rest of everybody else. Yeah, and there was that note on the on the Never Learn Not to Love tape box about this potentially being a honey song. So it's yeah, exactly. possi- possibly an arrangement idea he had left over from from that consideration. Um yeah, all, all these interlocking vocal parts are what first you know led me to wonder about that carl wilson production credit because oh yeah <laughs> we should talk certainly, about that. get out of the way <laughs> uh, yeah we we should yeah these are certainly brian's parts you know carl is good at what he does and and bruce can arrange vocals but he does it in a very straight way and no one could really write this this inner movement like brian um so yeah anyway on on the 2020 album we talked about this earlier they've got individual production credits for the songs and for this song we have it says produced by carl wilson um but as we know the backing track was something brian did for uh redwood danny hutton um in 67 and now with his vocals 
uh, these new vocals, all these parts were arranged by him. He's singing it on every track. Um, Carl's uh, part in the song is basically just the, you know, what he did was nothing more than, you know, the lead vocal. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine he was directing a session where Brian was arranging everything. So we're we're a bit confused as to why he got the production credit when it seemingly should be Brian or at least Brian and Carl. And it, it might just be an error that they made while printing the sleeves. To be, to be honest, I think it might even be that because, you know, it's not even a case of like Carl brings back a thing Brian finished and does it without him or it's not even like Brian and Carl working together. It seems like this is pretty much like Brian was behind this he came out and decided that he wanted to bring the song back and change it around and then arranged and produced all these new parts like he's on everything here he's like in good spirits he's talking on all the tracks he's singing everywhere it's obviously all his arrangements he's the one who would have made the call to get rid of the bridge because there's another track they worked on later um they did like another instrumental track there and then they've cut the instrumental break from from that one so that was obviously you know carl's not going to go and chop out part of brian's song without his permission that was obviously an idea that came from him and he's also gone and changed the lyrics around as well he's like this is you know brian is obviously is obviously the one who was responsible for bringing the song back so it might just be a simple something as simple as the capital art department like wrote down the wrong wilson for who produced it <laughs> you know or they got it from the tape box from the remake which says produced by carl wilson on it which carl was kind of running the session with brian on that one not on his mm -hmm. own but that's a reasonable thing to assume that might be where they got it from or is some sort of strange compensation for Carl's work on the small tracks there are a lot of theories about why this was but basically yeah but Brian yeah, was the, the one who the bottom... did this song <laughs> yeah the, that that credit has led to a lot of speculation about mm. Carl bringing back a song that the Beach Boys originally rejected and yeah. a lot's been written about that and, and uh, people are you know later they would talk about finishing off some of Brian's songs that he would start and refuse to finish. But this is not one of those songs. This is totally Brian's work from from the you know, the backing track he recorded for another group to this, this new vocal arrangement, which is completely his. Um, yeah, so I, I would support changing the, the credit to Brian on, on a reissue because um, that seems to be the case. But yeah. Anyways, um, so any yeah, so anyway, that, that out of the way, we'll keep talking about it. Carl's got a new lead vocal on this one, which is he sings the bridge now as well. Originally, they had it as Carl does the opening verses, and then Brian does the chorus, and also does the bridge and the last verse. But now Carl does all of the verses and the bridge. <laughs> and this one, I mean, obviously Carl's vocal was like really pretty in the first place, and this one, I think I prefer it maybe. It's double track this time, and it's just such a cozy vocal. It's one of my favorite Carl vocal performances ever. Lying down on her backs looking at the stars Looking down through the valley so deep and wide Aren't you glad we finally got away? Glad we finally got away Aren't you glad we finally got away? And then they've also brought back the, the deep and wide in the chorus Which was, um, sorry not the chorus, the bridge which was kind of a, you know, it was a harmony mo moment in the original song for Redwood, but now with the Beach Boys singing it, it's, and Steve Desper engineering it, they've turned it into a much bigger sort of like moment. It's like, a, it's kind of the highlight of the song now, and they've really sort of like put an emphasis on that. Um, so now the, the deep and wide thing is, um, 
it's all four of them again Brian Alcarl and Mike sing it as a four part harmony and then they triple tracked it to make it sound bigger and then Desper like shoves up the reverb to like a crazy level on this part that part so it really <laughs> sounds like physically deep and wide when you they sing it um, and it's it's one of those sort of like you know it's, it's, it's a really great moment it's like the good vibrations are when they all come out and sing that harmonies together but it's like even bigger than that I think um, and then they've all got these sort of really pretty harmonies afterwards um again the four of them yeah the, kind of freshman style this is such a such a pretty song i think i don't know if it's my favorite on the album it might mm. be i think yeah uh, it is for me it is for me definitely i mean it's hard not to say cabin essence but that feels like cheating because <laughs> we know it, it wasn't made for this album i mean i guess neither was this neither was neither was this really i mean but this is still my favorite thing on them even above cabin essence yeah, this this and I went to sleep. I like how they put the two Brian Wilson waltzes. Yeah, that's back, a good sequence. Back to back. That's, that's a rare case of good sequence on this on this album. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, this album is very is sequenced in a pretty particular way. It is. Yeah. It's not. It's not random. Um. They. It. I don't know if it flows the best way, but side two is kind of quite quite cohesive, and they obviously did quite an intentional thing in the way that they put certain people's songs together and stuff, and then. You know, you've got the two Brian waltzes and all the Brian materials kind of on one side and that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So to finish right. off with the vocals, this time in the original one, Brian sang the chorus on his own. And this time, Brian and Al, instead of double tracking it, Brian and Al do it single tracked, but they sing it together in unison. Um, and some of the lyrics have kind of been changed. They sing instead of just um, a city full of people twice, they do, um, you know, we'll be alone together, we'll only be together. And uh, they, they've also changed it so now at the end of the of the chorus, in, instead of just the original melody, Brian sings the part an octave up, and then Al's got a harmony with him. So it's um, they've kind of just flashed it out a little bit. I still prefer the original lead vocal, I think, but I I like the um, this extra touch to it. And they did a few different approaches as well. They did well. They did two different tracks on the tape, and one of them that they didn't use, they do that high harmony thing of both like sort of rounds of the chorus, and then in the final vocal they did it so it's only in the second round so it has a little bit more kind of development to it yeah i love this song me too. so much me too <laughs> uh, i always listen to it whenever I, I go to the snow um because it, it it just because of that that one line it always yeah. reminds me of of going sledding or something like that yeah i can't hide, you know the, the toboggan line has to be in there it's my <laughs> If I, if I was like to sort of craft a custom sort of like perfect version of this song, there might be some things mm-hmm. about the 67 one I like more, but like the toboggan, between the toboggan line and the verse backing vocals and deep and wide, I think they all have to, you know, they all have yeah. to be there. Um, there are some extra instruments they added as well onto this that, um, you know, just some extra last minute touches because they're not on the track sheet. So these were probably sort of some last minute things that they tried to throw in there. There's um, a 12 string guitar playing a rhythm part in the opening verses that must have been Carl they didn't use in the mix but it sounds it sounds pretty but it's you know kind of an unnecessary thing to the arrangement it's got that sort of very particular sort of mounts between all the, all the keyboards and to just have a sort of straight rhythm guitar strumming over the top of it kind of offsets that even though it does sound nice but it wasn't needed so they you know cut it from the mix for a reason and then there's also mm-hmm. a glockenspiel that plays this yeah real nice sort of pretty part in the second chorus only it's just there for just there for a moment, but it's it adds, adds a real nice touch to it. Yeah, one thing I really like about the the mix on on Hawthorne, California, that Mark Lynette did is um, it highlights those harmonies at the end as they're fading out. And yeah, they, you know, they as, as together, much as I love everything else like, that's going on there, mm. um, I really I, I kind of wish the Beach Boys did that more, fading out to just the vocals because it's it's really pretty. 
Yeah, I, I really like the Hawthorne ending, but that was kind of con- uh, kind of a constructed thing for that box set. These um, those were kind of copy pasted and then put on the end as sort of like constructed acapella ending, which it works. It works really yeah. good. Like, yeah, very nice. Mm. So this is another song that, as soon as they were working on it, they began considering it as another single, uh, in place of "I Can Hear Music," which was in place of "Never Learn Not to Love," <laughs> which was uh, yeah. You know, they were working on after we're together again. Uh, you can hear Brian and Al talking together. Where and Brian's like, "This could be a this could be a hit." <laughs> they just start start talking about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so this this is a song that they mixed um, to mono, um, which uh, probably involved Brian, but it also meant that they were thinking about putting this out as as a. Uh, as a follow-up to do it again and and that obviously didn't didn't happen and at at some point they they experimented with slowing down the whole thing by a, a half step because this is obviously a song that brian went through many phases with he was unhappy with the track and then he came back to it and he did that whole other version and then he's going to do another version later on at capital um so you know it caused him a lot of trouble it's like kind of another can't wait too long or heroes and villains um, but anyways, the song was was finished relatively quickly, and um, the Beach Boys went on to to New York to play a show and to appear on the Ed Sullivan Show, where they played Good Vibrations and Do It Again. And um, random tidbit from uh, from our buddy Pat, who found yeah. all those Ron Wilson articles, is that Brian meanwhile, attended back a, at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, meanwhile back at home. Brian and Ron Wilson attended a church party, uh, a party at some church um, that was, you know, Ron Wilson was connected to and I guess invited Brian to and yeah, it was I like don't know. The first <laughs> annual fall, f- I'm, I'm reading the article, it's the first annual fall fun fair at St. Augustine by the Sea, Episcopal um, Church in Santa Monica. And then, like, this just okay. this article about it. The- <laughs> and then uh, just down there in the bottom, it's like... Um, um, some of the guests that are going to be there, um, some like radio DJ, and then it's like Brian Wilson of the world famous Beach Boys and Columbia recording star Ron Wilson, uh, just kind of in the list. And it's like, what? what? <laughs> it's, it's such a bizarre find, but I I love this kind of thing. It's, yeah. Well, the Be- while Brian was missing sessions and the Beach Boys were going out to tour in um, New York, this is what Brian was up to, just attending this as a special guest of this random like church festival thing. <laughs> <laughs> yep thanks pat for that uh <laughs> that info i guess that's that's good to know uh yeah also i like how they call ron wilson a columbia recording star he had one you know single that no one had ever heard of yeah well columbia were dodging his calls because they wouldn't re- promote his record yep yeah so uh <laughs> after the ed sullivan show while the beach boys were in new york without brian they worked on the album uh without him doing some some mixes and some extra recording at uh, the Capitol Studio there and a place called Bell Sound, uh, which is interesting. I know you just said that this is pretty much, you know, besides the group recording on tour in Nashville where they did a version of Dance, Dance, Dance back in 64. This is one of the only times they did this. Um, So they did about a week of recording there. And, yeah, oh, I guess we should just talk about Bluebirds Over the Mountain. Yeah, which is the main thing that they worked on at this point. Um, yeah. So so Bluebirds was done back 
like around the time they were doing Wild Honey in 67, Bruce did this basic track that we talked about a few episodes ago that was, he was thinking about it as a solo single at this point, but he didn't get very far with it. He just kind of did a drum and bass sort of foundation for it and then left it in the can. Um, and at this point, I guess they were, you know, they were really looking for material that they could finish off by themselves without Brian. Uh, even though, you know, they've just done time to get alone and they didn't put it out as a single for some reason. But evidently Carl heard this track and they sort of decided that they could turn it into a Beach Boys song. Um, so Bruce went with it and they ended up sort of like producing the final thing together. Um, so just building on top of that basic track, they went over to New York and then they started sort of just stacking things on top of it. And it's sort of like, I've never loved this one. It's very sort of like Beach Boys by numbers in a way, but it's also all these sort of different conflicting styles. Like you've got the sort of like funky breakdown and then the, the Hendrix lead guitar and then sort of like loungy strings and horns on the end of it. <laughs> it's, it's such a mishmash of like different sort of things to just try and be a sort of commercial, normal Beach Boys song that they can, you know, it's something that they can promote and then tour. Um, so Carl and Al played acoustic guitars in this thing, and then for the first time ever on a Beach Boys studio track, Daryl Dragon, who's been doing some things on the rope with him, he played the marimba on this thing. Um, and he would obviously become like a really integral and important part of the Beach Boys studio crew in the, over the next few years, and this was where he made his first appearance on a recording. Um, Carl played the um, electric guitar on this, um, Bruce played an organ, Mike Kowalski's there again doing congas, and then... Um, Back in LA, I guess I'm doing this a bit out of order, um, Eckhart added that sort of like imitation, you know, San Francisco shredding lead guitar, which is like <laughs> absolutely bizarre and so out of place. And it, it kind of, I, but I kind of don't like the track without it. I kind of like, it kind of has to be there because it's so ridiculous, but it, it's, it, gives it, it gives it something to latch onto. Um, yeah, it, it, it is kind of a ridiculous song. I mean, it, it it started off as a like an R&B, uh, just bass and drums groove, which was um, while it was you know going to be a Bruce Johnston single, which is uh, well, that would be such a strange alternate universe to live in, I where know, Bruce I, Johnston has just started doing singles I, while in the band. I kind of wish they did that, so his songs weren't on the albums. But you know, that's just me. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this is um. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of conflicting styles here, but uh, maybe Brian being, bringing back Time to Get Alone from that era sort of inspired Bruce to bring back this thing he was working on Could simultaneously. Be. Could be, um, yeah. And of course, the, the the lyrics here is some some weird new new harmony parts and, and all that, and it's, it's another Bruce Johnston vocal arrangement uh, on a cover. But uh, Carl had a lot to do with the song too, as I understand. Yeah, and uh, Mike kind of came up with some new lyrics in the bridge. I think I haven't listened to the original song in a while. Again, I haven't done my research for this episode. It's really bad. Um, but Mike sort of came up with some things there, and then <laughs> um, they these sort of kind of nasty sound and backing vocals, which don't to me just don't sound good. Like if they they sound kind of flat and whiny. Um, but then if you in looking at the track sheet, it says vocal harmonica. And I was like, oh, okay, they were singing to try and sound like a harmonica, and that's why they sound like that, uh, I guess. Ah, like, like the effect that they were going for. Which, which it is, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so Mike has a really good lead vocal, to be fair, especially in the bridge part. Um, Bruce sings one word at the end for some reason, and then they had, um, when they were doing the string overdubs on the Nearest Faraway Place and um, Be With Me, they had some time at the end, so on the spot, they came up with um, 
just this sort of light string part to add on there. And there's also some horns on here as well. I, you know, we don't know who the string and horn players were because it was in New York, so the AFMs were filed with a different um, union and, you know, Craig Sawinski, Hugh, you know, for all these, managed to get all of the things that they did. Um, AFM Local 47, which is a complete miracle that we have all that stuff now, but the things that they very sporadically did in New York over the years, which is basically just this and then the Brian Wilson solo album, we don't have the stuff for that. Um, so yeah, they got back to LA, they did a f- quite a few mixes of this thing, there are far too many sessions for this song, and it's quite confusing to track when they did what, but Ed Carter's lead guitar part was apparently added back in New York, they did a few different mixes of this as a single, and then they did something really strange, they had like a mono mix as a single, and that was done, it was a finished song, but then they decided they wanted to add some more things to it, so they like dubbed it down to one track of a stereo mix, like just a two track thing, with a mono mix on one channel. And then on the spare channel, they added like another in another overdub session. They added a lot of extra things like percussion and car playing another acoustic guitar. Like there's these like delayed tempo blocks, and there's a shaker and this tambourine and cowbell in there. Um, and it's this strange way of going about doing a single. So, so they added this extra thing, and then it, you can hear it on the uh, Beach Boys rarities come from the '80s. They completely separated out. Um, and then they, the idea was they weren't going to mix this down into just a mono mix. They sent it out. I don't know what the story was behind this, but they sent it out with like instructions for different um, like branches of capital for how to like mix it together before they pressed it. Like to what levels to set the two channels has to mix them. I don't know why they didn't just do a mono mix, but it's absolutely bizarre. And then because those instructions weren't followed, I think there's like a, a Dutch version of the single with the percussion track is like really loud and like louder than, than the main song because it just it was just folded together. I don't know. I just don't know why they did this. <laughs> This is a uh, one of those weird cases where it sounds like just a you know throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. Pretty much yeah. method of production, um, and and sort of a b- bizarre choice for the next Beach Boys single after all those strong originals. You know, uh, mm. we're together again, never learn not to love. Yeah, time to get alone. Uh, all all songs that were kind of passed up in favor of, of this, but probably passed up at, at Brian's choice at least for his songs. Uh, like you said, he, when when they they weren't going forward with the Brian Wilson song, it was because of him. Yeah. But I, f- so I feel like he would have had his... some reservations about. Oh, I feel like he would have won his time to get alone out as a single. Then I think they would have put it out if you know everybody agreed on it, even if Brian changed his mind because that was done. It was yeah. Next. You think they would have um, maybe overridden him? Yeah. I mean, it was. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing with this one is, I think it was just it was a straight ahead like more commercial thing. Like it had the mm-hmm. the trendy sort of distorted guitar and it was kind of a recognizable song it was a straight ahead pop thing it wasn't charles manson you know <laughs> so it was it was something yeah that, it does have that going for it it was the first yeah it's kind of the first thing the beach boys have ever really done where it feels like they did it just as kind of just because they needed to, something commercial that would like sell because they were kind of in a rut um and it did it did pretty well in europe i think i don't know if the charts in front of me and I think Brian liked this as well. He mentioned a while that they had a good string of singles like I Can Hear Music and Bloopers Over the Mountain that he thought were great, but they didn't make it very well. Um, yeah, this is an odd one. I've never I've never loved this track. I know some people do like it, but for me it doesn't have the 
like the, that sort of feeling and sort of sincerity behind it is every other Beach Boys thing at, at this point. It seems like a, it didn't really like it was done because they needed the material, not because they like were really passionate about it. It's like a load of ideas put together, but to, to sell something. I don't know. That's just the way it feels yeah. to me. But <laughs> I could be just being overly cynical about this thing because it's Bruce, <laughs> and that's just the way Bruce seems. You know, Bruce, Bruce is like he's very. He's, he's very transparent about the fact that he does things like tears in the morning. He's like, oh, I just, you know, I, I, I um, made up the whole story in the lyrics, like, because for showbiz, like, he's not kind of a guy who writes things about his own life and is trying to put some artistic meaning into a song apart from maybe Disney Girls. He, you know, he's, he's a, he's kind of a, a cold, soulless killer of a, okay, I'm, <laughs> that's maybe a bit far, but you, you know what I mean, you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I do know what you mean. Yeah, it, it does have some charm to it, though. Then, then they did some other, other things in New York as well, which on October 14, at Capitol, they did this thing called Oh Yeah, which came out on the um, oh copyright yeah. set. Oh Yeah, Oh Yeah. <laughs> hey. Oh Yeah. I know you want it. Oh Yeah. But you can have it. Oh Yeah. Because I got it. Oh Yeah. It's in my hand. Oh Yeah. I can't write. Oh Yeah. It's in my eyes. Oh Yeah. I can't see. Oh, yeah. Um, so the story behind this was just like it was just some kid doing this kind of like chant thing and then they came across him on the street and they liked what he was doing and they were like hey do you want to come in the studio and record this and it, it's basically just like this kid doing this sort of like little slam poetry kind of uh, it's not really slam poetry is it? I don't know what you call this thing he's, um, he's got this little kind of like poem or chant or whatever and then the Beach Boys are all just snapping their fingers and going oh yeah Oh yeah, behind him, and it's it's like it's this is such a fun little thing. I mean, I always thought Twenty Twenty should have been the album that they turned into a double album, even if they didn't have that like quite as much material as Sunflower. It's the one that where they were doing like such an eclectic mix of things they didn't quite fit together. And I think the more stuff you yeah. cram together, the more it feels like an actual, you know, the more it feels like a sort of like time capsule instead of like a disjointed, you know, regular album. And I I think mm-hmm. they should have just put this thing on there because it's 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 a lot of fun. Um, to this day, nobody knows who the kid was. I like to think it was somebody who like turned out to be famous. I wonder if if he even knew it was the Beach Boys, or you know, <laughs> if they properly introduced themselves, or, or if they were just like, "Hey, that sounds cool. You wanna you wanna come in here, and we'll we'll put a microphone on you and I know. put you on tape." <laughs> I, mean, got, I hope he he got to take a copy home and show his parents or whatever. <laughs> um, so we've got one more thing that they did while they were in New York, apart from. Oh yeah, also the nearest, nearest faraway place as well. They did kind of a rough mix without the strings, sort of in preparation for Adam the Overdubs. And I think Daryl Dragon played the vibraphone on that. And obviously with the addition of strings, it became even more sort of like soft pop elevated music. Um, this, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, you know. Very loungy. Very, very. Um, but also while they were in New York as well, they did kind of an early version of Dennis's All I Want to Do, which is a song that... Um, was credited to just Dennis Wilson by his, his on his own, but it was actually a Stephen Kalanich co-write. And Kalanich didn't just come up with some of the lyrics of this thing, he also came up with basically like the basis of the melody, um, but he wasn't credited on this. Yeah, this is, Dennis put the song together in a similar way that he did Never Learn Not to Love, which is he took a, a basic song written by someone else and um, kind of just fleshed it out, you know, learning from what Brian did to him on Little Bird and sort of develop the lyrics and develop the, the structure of the song into something more complete. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Steve told me that he wrote uh, the lyrics and the melody 
of at least the first part of the song and he sang it to me which was very funny to hear i love i i wish the stephen callan's rock and roll album happened you know with all i want to do lucy jones she <laughs> should have had yeah you know should have had like a version of ding dang on there or he's he's an interesting guy he's, he, he he's is, uh, he is it's crazy that like the Stephen Carnage correct credits, you know, are things like "Be Still," "Little Bird," and then mm. you've got this as well with Stephen Carnage. You know, it's just a song about sex. That's all it is. It's yeah. <laughs> um, so 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 anyway, they did this like really sort of rough, scrappy track. It's kind of almost like a demo, but it's you know they did do some overdubs and things on it. It's got kind of fuzz guitar and bass and this wild sort of cowbell on there. And Dennis is um, clearly the, the lyrics haven't really been developed yet. And Dennis is doing sort of his first kind of rock vocal for the beach boys um it's it's a which he was really good at like he you know he's, he's got the raspy voice and it was never really utilized in that way before this apart from mm-hmm. kind of in in do you want to dance but not really at all in the same way he does here which is kind of like a punk thing well uh, almost well do you want to dance was before he got really good as a singer exactly, in my opinion yeah, yeah. he was still no, kind of just the 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 drummer who could yell loud and and get all the girls attention on that song which i think was yeah, the point but yeah yeah pretty much yeah <laughs> so we may as well i mean slightly out of order we may as well just talk about the final version of the song over at it which was done back sure. in la at uh, valentine studio on november 9th so they went back and um did this a new track with which was a little bit more refined a little bit less sort of wild um not 100% sure who's playing on this, but we know it's Mike Kowalski on drums, probably would have been Ed Carter on bass, um, Carl on the fuzzy rhythm guitar. The piano sounds too good to be Dennis, so I'm going to say it was probably Daryl. And um, there's also an organ on there, which I guess would probably be Dennis's part. Um, so they, they um, Ed Carter added this lead guitar part on this as well, which was a, a lot more reserved at this point. It, they had this other one that wasn't used. And Dennis did a lead vocal as well, which uh, was double tracked, and it, he sounds really good on this. So, like, you know, he did a few different lead vocals um, on these different tapes. Um, and then what they did is they mixed it down to, you know, they did a reduction mix to free up some tracks. And I think the story behind this one with Dennis's um, other lead vocal is, you know, one of the reduction mix takes, Dennis went ahead and did this like other lead vocal on there and then on another one of the takes that's where they ended up adding Mike's lead vocal and all the other Beach Boys backing vocals and the horns um, and then when the tapes were rediscovered because this is something that was left behind at Valentine's Studio which is kind of mothballed for ages before Mark Lynette was able to get access to it um, Dennis had this other lead vocal take on one of the reduction mixes that was kind of synced up to the final track along with all the, all the other final overdubs um, and it seems like it probably wasn't a complete vocal because then Mike comes in at the end in that mix like in the final one um, so there are a few different sessions for this and November 14th is when I think the group did the vocal parts um, Dennis has this great lead vocal on here it's it's perfect for the song and then Mike did a lead vocal which again is also like Dennis is completely out of character for anything he's done so far it's a screaming lead vocal mm-hmm. he's picking some notes that he's never hit on a record before he has that like high A like that high A that he hits there just well, just yelling his head off and it, he sounds really good on this um I think it's purely a matter of opinion on this one. There's like, there's no right, there's no like, Dennis is better or Mike did it better because they both did like a fantastic job on this. Even though I might, like, I go with Dennis just because he wrote the song and I think it fits his sort of attitude more. Hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely wish. Um, yeah, like, I, I think they both sound great on this. I definitely wish Dennis used that voice more often than he did. Yeah. Because I, I, I mean, I love Forever and and all his ballads, but. He kind of only did that after this, you know, with with a few yeah. exceptions until his um his, vo- his voice totally changed. 
but he yeah, sounds I mean, what have we got after really this? great we've got on these early takes. Yeah, but I mean, we've got Slip On Through, we've got um, Got Another Woman, and then that's pretty much like it for this Dennis voice. He does some other things like Before and 71, which is just like like a couple of lines where he, he breaks into a, a vocal like that, but Dennis just didn't really utilize this, this voice very often, he, and he had such a good yeah. voice for it because he had that rasp to him, and he, he had the range as well to go with it, and he, it's a sort of dimension that the Beach Boys otherwise didn't really get into. Yeah, um, and yeah, I, I think this this would have been their their into making more hard rock, which is something they obviously wanted to do with uh, with that that you know guitar solo on Bluebirds Over the Mountain. But I think they went about it in the wrong way, and then just sort of went back into doing what they were used to doing. Yeah, and then um, oh yeah, Eckhart has the lead guitar on this as well. Like he had that sort of slightly more reserved um, part on the original first generation tape, and then on the final one, mm-hmm. he redid it, and it's much more like bluebirdsy. It's very like kind of like theatrical, and they added some fuzz in the mix. And you also got Roger Newman to arrange some horns on this thing, which I'm not really a fan of. I think between some kind of basic Beach Boys backing vocals and the horns and that kind of like really over the top lead guitar, I think it it's like too much. Like it's <laughs> it was yeah, kind of this like. Yeah sort of edgy rocker and then all of a sudden it's it's like you know I, I just don't think it fits yeah and that earlier version I think is uh, pretty cool it's more Stones like and it's just very simple straight ahead rock exactly, and roll yeah. with Dennis yeah. Wilson singing which I, which is you know really really cool and very rare unfortunately a time to live in dreams a time to lay beside Uh, moving on to another song that Dennis began work on, which is a very, very different, <laughs> very uh, different type of song. Yeah, rewinding a little bit to November first this time, back at Capitol. Yeah, so uh, Dennis worked on writing that song. All I want to do with Stephen Kolonich, and now he's working with him again on um, reviving one of the other songs from that demo tape, uh, which is now called "A Time to Live in Dreams." Um, with some some great new words I think this is maybe my favorite Steve Stevie Kolonich uh, contribution to a Beach Boy song either this or or um I don't know honestly I, I, I really Charlotte like Linda. his come on sort of <laughs> get real <laughs> it's re- yeah, it's I, really I, pretty I really song. like this yeah. the, the way the lyrics sound on this one and I'm glad Dennis started too, writing yeah. again with him rather than continuing his uh well, that's the thing, though. I don't think writing with his other friend. That's the thing, though. I don't think Dennis. I don't think they did work together on this one. The impression I got, because um, Steve Kalanich, he didn't even know that this was a thing until he was played it for the um, Hawthorne comp. He was, you know, he was. Mm-hmm. I think Marilyn was there as well, and Alan Boyd played it to him. And as soon as he started to realize mm-hmm. that it was his words on this thing, he was like jumping up and down on the sofa, being like, "That's me! I wrote that!" Like, I'm not even sure he realized that Dennis took his poem and then went in the studio and turned it into a song at the time well that's uh that's very dennis wilson of him to do that without <laughs> letting him yeah. know yeah dennis had like a chord progression and steve had a poem and then i guess dennis took that poem and then put it to this chord progression he'd, he'd come up with and put a melody to it um maybe that's how or maybe he just forgot about it but i i do get the impression that dennis basically just did this of his own volition like without even uh, uh Kalanish even knowing about it it's a simple track. Mm-hmm. De- uh, Despo was there with him along with the Capital Engineers. Just Dennis is the only one on this recording. He played piano, he played organ, and then he played like a sort of really uh, sparse uh, Celeste part. 
and then a real nice sort of croaky whispered lead vocal and uh that's the song that's it it's it's basically a complete recording even though it's very sparse and i think it's another sort of no-brainer of one that should have been on the album but um for yeah. whatever reason it was left off yeah they really could have you know with just a little bit more work maybe a few more days of work they could have finished enough songs to have a double you know, two albums worth of material yeah around this time I really, really like that that keyboard part, that Celeste part, where it's just kind of this tinkling. dissonant little yeah. tinkling in the in the in the background. Uh, really pretty song. Hmm. Um, Brian was played. Yeah. yeah, Alan played this thing for Brian for the first time as well when they were doing the Hawthorne box. And Brian never would have known about this song. You know, Dennis did so much on his own, and you just recorded this a capital like by himself and Steve Dasper. So Brian never would have even heard this thing because it was never mixed and completed. And um, he was shown it for the first time, and he was apparently like really kind of like emotional and clearly moved by it, and said it was like wow, what what, what a, like what a song by the, by the end of it. So that, that's um, I, I love hearing anything with Brian sort of appreciating Dennis's music because he doesn't. Mm-hmm. I think he doesn't like to talk about it in public a lot because it's obviously you know yeah. after Dennis died, it's. It's something he doesn't like to revisit too much, but I, there are all these kind of occasional stories of Brian kind of talking with a lot of pride of about uh, Dennis's music and really being a big fan of it. So it's nice that he eventually got to hear this and he was, you know, he really liked it. Yeah, and I think I remember reading that he kind of perked up at the line, forgive your brother. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so nice. <laughs> that's um, I, I love hearing stories like that because mm-hmm. it's probably painful, but also just there's so much other music and in Brian's life and he's written and produced so much that it's, it's almost like, I don't know. It's, it's just, uh, people don't really ask him. I think about, about Dennis and Carl's music a lot just because, um, yeah, you know, when you're talking to Brian Wilson, you want to, you want to hear about (laughs) Brian Wilson's music, but it is, it is, um, kind of sweet that, that he never heard that song and then, and then got to hear it for the first time. Definitely. Yeah. They, they showed something similar in the, that new documentary of him listening to Pacific yeah, Ocean in, Blue. In but, uh, for the first we time. know that wasn't his, his, <laughs> we know that wasn't his real, you know, first time listening to it. He, he'd heard of that one before. Yeah. I mean, we were also talking to some of the people who played on um, some of the American spring sessions in Iowa recently, or rather you were, he, you were the one who was um, doing the interviews with them. Um, but we found mm-hmm. out from that that obviously the Spring did a version of uh, Fallen in Love there where they overdubbed vocals on a Dennis's original track and Brian was kind of gushing about how much he loved the song and how proud he was of Dennis and like, you know, how yeah. isn't this melody beautiful and the way the strings come in and stuff. And that was like amazing to hear that he was like, you know, obviously he was would have been the reason behind getting that song, but that wasn't immediately sort of obvious just looking at um, the history behind these things. But it's nice to know that yeah, you know, he, um, it was Brian who was pushing for them to do that song and he really loved it. Yeah, he was proud of Dennis, but um, he also, I, I, I've i heard Brian talk about on some talk show, I think he said that they were nervous to show him, you know, their songs, the other Beach Boys, because it's like, you're presenting a song that you've written to Brian Wilson, um, who is not only, you know, the greatest songwriter in the world, but he's your older brother. Yeah, exactly. Um, who's always, uh, you know, done a lot for you. So I think a lot of this stuff that, we'll talk about the Dennis recorded would be, you know, just these smaller unfinished things would be things that Brian never, uh, listened to or mm-hmm. even was shown, um, just because of, you know, Dennis being nervous and Brian pulling back mm-hmm. on the complete opposite end of that spectrum. I completely forgot to bring, to bring this up earlier, but in that sort of, um, 
crazy record collector interview in 1995 where Brian was commented on a lot of Beach Boy songs. He mentioned Be With Me, and he does not have the same reaction there. Um, this is what he says about Be With Me. Dennis's song Be With Me was dramatic, a man who wanted so to have a girl be with him that he wrote a song about it. Dennis's um, pause, Dennis was a weird guy. Sometimes he played weak. He wouldn't do his full effort. He was a little tricky, and he didn't come across with all the goodies. I don't know what the hell that means, but I guess that means Dennis didn't, didn't, <laughs> Brian didn't really like to be with me. Um, <laughs> he's just like, Dennis, had a, Dennis was a, a weird that's guy. a strange little... <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, you know who also didn't like be with me was Dennis. Uh, oh, really? He was asked. Well, he was asked about like. Uh, there's some interview from I think '76 where he where he says 2020 is the most embarrassing like worst Beach Boys album ever. Oh yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, because he said it was the first time they had to do it kind of without Brian, and he was really embarrassed by that one. Yeah. So that that reads to me like like he was embarrassed of his own work because he he has quite a few of the songs on here. I mean, he's got a quarter of the album, and so, I don't know, if you're embarrassed by the thing, he's, I think he was thinking of his own work, because he never really, I mean, they didn't do these songs live besides All I Want to Do, they did add that to the to the set, but, yeah, you know, I think the other two were more like exercises for Dennis, mm. um, and also, you know, probably bad um, associations with uh, <laughs> a certain murderer, <laughs> yeah. murderous cult leader. <laughs> <laughs> okay so anyway, so one more dennis thing we've got left which is mona Carter, yes um, um which is uh, dennis had done kind of a demo piano track back in the summer and now he's turned it into a full production which is like a very big orchestral type, type production it's quite similar to be with me in that way they did it at id sound and again roger newman was there to help with the um arrangements um and this one was also produced with some help from carl um it's kind of an unusual track it's it's very heavily sort of orchestrated compared to a lot of the things that we're doing at this point and also it was never finished with mm -hmm. the vocal um it was dennis on piano a, a session guy called frank de la rosa on upright bass matt kowalski's on the drums again daryl dragon on wally snow are playing the mallets and then on top of that there are just a whole load of horns and strings and flutes and uh that sort of thing it's uh, there's a little bit more to the song this time than the demo there's like a new chorus section in there but um, it's yeah, it's it's a much more developed arrangement of this thing that you've done with Stephen Kalinich. And um, do you mm -hmm. want do you want to read out? Because <laughs> since I got the uh, all, I, all I want to do story, do you want to read out Stephen's explanation of what the song is about and the, uh, the famous lyrics? He said, uh, "Mona Kana is about a gorgeous Hawaiian Indian maiden calling across the waters of her undying love. He hears it, and that restores the symphony of life. It is love crying out, knowing that underneath it all is bliss." Dennis and I envisioned a video, a movie, a visual component. And the lyrics were Mona Kana, Iniwini Kana, Unakana, Anake, Nanana. My love is in the river, calling from a dream. She calling out to me. I flow with the stream. Mona Kana, Iniwini Kana. <laughs> Which is fine, apart from the two words, um, Iniwini, being in there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all I can think about when I think about this song now. Iniwini Kana, uh, Mona Kana, Iniwini Kana. Yeah, it, it's sort of in the vein of like, um, do you like worms? And, Just nonsense, and fake the, Hawaiian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't sound anything. Yeah, the, the track itself doesn't sound like Hawaiian music to me at all. Though it sounds more like, it sounds more like a sort of Western movie type thing. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's like kind of, it's kind of similar to some of the more cinematic smile 
tracks. Yeah. It, um, with with the big sweeping, you know, violins and all that. Yeah, the, but the, um, the sort of minor key um, verses and the pluck strings. It really kind of. It reminds me a lot of um, Three Blind Mice, the sort of Brian experiment. Oh yes, yes, that, that the strings. Track. It, it really kind of has a similar sort of vibe to it. But um, I think that's kind of what what maybe puts me off this and be with me in the arrangement sort of department is they sound kind of like very Hollywood the horns which I guess is a side effect of that guy Roger Newman doing them which is you know he's a fine arranger and these are fine arrangements but they just don't sound very Beach Boys they sound like very sort of Mm -hmm. Hollywood sort of like stock movie soundtrack type horn arrangements and they're they're like very sort of big and they swallow up most of the track as well yeah uh yeah I sort of agree I Although it, it's it's hard for me to judge it when it, it didn't even get um, you know any vocals or anything like yeah. that. If it had a melody, I'm sure it would, would be thinking about this like very differently. I'd, I'd really like to hear what it, what how the song was going to go. Yeah, or if they would have, if it would have been like "Be with Me," where it's just Dennis, or if there would have been a big Beach Boys, you know, backing vocal arrangement. So then, one one day after this, this is on November fifteenth, and now we're on November sixteenth. They're back at Capitol, and Dennis records this thing called The Gong, um, which is came out on the copyright set. And I'm surprised that this got released, but hey, let's uh, let's talk about it anyway. Basically, um, for the intro of Never Learn Not To Love <laughs> on the album, this uh, the single mix didn't have this, but they added this for the album. It's um, a gong, basically, is being hit in reverse and slowed down to half speed, so it's this like really ominous build up before the song, and it sounds like you're kind of like going into the void, and it's very creepy. Um... Dennis really didn't need to add any extra creepiness to his songs, but he did. (laughs) (laughs) They were already, you know, pretty weird. The song isn't even, I mean, lyrically maybe a little bit, but the song isn't really creepy outside of that. But then this thing on the front of it really makes it, you know, it's, it's freaky. It's, oh yeah. I mean, I mean that, (laughs) that in combination with the, with the Charles Manson connection. And then of course, um, be with me already is, is just a, a, weird weird song um so so anyway we've got this gong intro that they obviously mixed down and put on the start of never learn not to love and then on the same tape there's all these um there's kind of a series of unusual kind of experiments the first thing is um i guess some like diy sounds with sort of construct like tools and running water and stuff like that for some reason i don't know what this is from it sounds kind of inspired by the the small workshop sounds I have no idea what the purpose for this was. Maybe you wanted to similarly put it into a song like the Do It Again ending. Who knows? And then it goes into this sort of improvised song of Dennis basically just um, playing a clavinet and screaming. Like he's uh, doing this kind of blues thing and yelling about cutting his hair off and he's making up this thing on the spot. And then after that, it kind of goes into this Dennis um, like narrated sort of off the top of his head monologue which feels like it's he's basically doing a Charles Manson impression and that that's the thing where I'm surprised that they released it and I'm glad that they did but I, d- I don't want to listen to it again for, for historical reasons it's it's interesting and Dennis is just doing this weird off the, off the cuff um like thing like he's I, I don't even it's it's very creepy to hear and he's de- he's definitely doing a Charlie voice um <laughs> yeah it's it's uh well first of all i wanted to say it's it's uh kind of unique how they started to do for this album uh sound effects and i think that was probably a a, a result of of steve desper 
for the first time being the primary engineer, but they, they pulled out the workshop sounds for Dude Again. They did more workshop sounds here. They did the All I Want to Do <laughs> ending. <laughs> they did the gong stuff. Um, seems like they were experimenting um, with, you know, non-musical sound and incorporating that into the, the music in a way that they'd they hadn't in a long time. But yeah, Al Jardim was also, watching this and uh, squinting and getting some ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think it's pretty funny how Dennis was kind of flopping back and forth between two collaborators, those two guys being Charles Manson um, and Stephen Kolinich, who is one of the sweetest guys I've ever talked to from the, the Beach Boys <laughs> world. He's just so nice. And <laughs> and I think that... that kind of speaks to the you know the crazy ups and downs in Dennis's life and in the people he talked to I mean he he really surrounded himself with every type of person (laughs) imaginable and and I think that's why you know his songs and his moods all varied so so much you know he probably had a, a little bit of what Brian had you know I know he's very back and forth but his his um his choice of collaborators is just so funny to me <laughs> so uh, just as before after we have like a scary Dennis thing we get to a nice cozy Brian thing um, it's just the pattern at this point <laughs> so, so this yes, is um, so... Cotton Fields the first version from uh, the 2020 album so basically Al um, for the first time is really having some creative input into a Beach Boys song with this and Al um reworked the old Huddy Ledbetter song um, Cotton Fields it's like a complete it's just credited to um, Ledbetter on the album but it's basically a, like a complete Arjardine overhaul he turns it into a kind of a modern pop song with these new lyrics about like an, an old man with a hat and uh, a summer's day in California and stuff and it, it's got these new chords to it and the melody's kind of different and um, yeah so, so so Al kind of had this this new version of Cotton Fields and he took it to Brian and he, he kind of what he wanted was to, for this to be another Sloop John B. You know, it's the same formula of an old um, folk song, kind of updated and um, given a, a shiny new production. And he thought, you know, Brian evidently got excited about the song and the idea of doing it. And they kind of collaborated on this thing. It's a very late addition to the album. This is just a few days before they had to finish this whole thing up. And Brian's been absent from so many of these sessions. And out of nowhere, he kind of comes back with Al and does this, this track. Um, and it's, mm-hmm. it's a really interesting production. Um, very kind of folky in the sort of similar vein to Old Man River and his other things from 68. Um, but it definitely wasn't Sleep John B2. It kind of, what Brian did with it was um, to take it in a much more sort of subtle, sort of gentle, um, mellow direction. Um, which is, it's, I think it's a brilliant arrangement. There are some things about it that don't quite work and some things that do. But it, it feels like there was sort of conflicting, conflicting attitudes to what, towards what they wanted with this one. And obviously Al wasn't really happy with the end result. And, he went back and cut his own version in 1969. Um, so yeah, this is over and we'll, we'll we'll talk about the <clears throat> we'll talk about the single version in the uh, in the next episode. But yeah, it's interesting to to look at this timeline and see the Beach Boys doing a whole bunch of work on Bluebirds and some other songs in New York, and then really all the the rest of the material they work on for nearly a month is Dennis Wilson songs, all, all the new songs they did and. There wasn't really anything they were doing that Brian was really involving himself in for a, a while here. It's, it's 
the Beach Boys are, are kind of working as a group without him. Yeah, I mean, they, then, they were mixing the album at this point. It was pretty much done. So this was yeah. like very, very last minute. They were doing the smile things at this point as well. They'd yeah. just done um, Our Prayer, I think probably without Brian the day before this. So this is November 18th over ID Sound. Again, because yeah. I think they'd torn the home studio down and we're using like... You know, the whole thing with the home studio was they had a sort of dual purpose sound system where they would take it on tour and then they would unload it into Brian's house and use that to record with. Um, so whenever they, the Beach Boys were on tour, they couldn't record in Brian's house and they were kind of keeping it like primed, I think, at this point because they were ready to go away. This is um, four days after uh, Brian and Al attended the Yellow Submarine uh, premiere and Brian is photographed with a seemingly holding a tape recorder <laughs> was he bootlegging it who knows <laughs> um maybe, maybe that's what they were talking maybe that's what um where they got the idea to do this like um brian was trying to watch the yeah. film and i was like talking over it trying to convince him to do cotton field so i don't, I don't know <laughs> um, it, was, it, it seems like um you know al trying to not just trying to get his idea to um to do this, this uh, you know, kind of sequel to Sloop John B with Brian, but also a, an attempt to get Brian back into the fold somewhat and and try to work on a commercial, you know, hit song kind of production. Um, and and this is what what does this say on the album? It says produced by Al Jardine and Brian. Wilson, no, it says right? produced by Brian and Al. Or um, just... but Al said it was yeah. Al said it was all Brian's Brian and arrangement, gotcha. and uh, so I was kind of supervising this thing, but Brian was the one who kind of arranged and put the track together. Um, yeah. Because so, that's what Brian does. Yeah, so so the way they put the track together is it seems like Brian actually shipped his um his home his favorite piano on the chicken out to ID Sound Studio because the home studio wasn't available to use at the time. Uh, but Brian really liked that piano to record with, so he had it um brought out to the South Studio, which seems kind of insane for a big grand piano, but he did that earlier in the year at mm-hmm. um Valentine too, and we've got stories like of uh, the the rooftop Harry session of of like them unloading a grand piano into the studio for the session, so it's something that they would do from time to time. Um, so yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he's he's Brian Wilson. He could he could bring pianos all around Hollywood exact, if he wants. Exactly, exactly. Um, so surprise playing the piano. Alvis Govo's there. He was, um, you know, he was he's really on a lot of this stuff at this point in the late sixties. He's one of Brian's go-to guys. He's playing a pedal steel guitar mm-hmm. on this. It's not as overt as the one in the single mix, but it's still that's where it came from. It wasn't a completely original thing. He's got a pedal steer in here. It's just very kind of subtle. It's not as kind of out there country as it was in the final one. Ed Carter's playing bass mm-hmm. and Larritz is also playing upright bass on this. It's kind of, a, again, probably going for that Sloop John B thing. It's two basses, but it's not quite as a defined sound as that. And Hal Blaine is back on drums mm-hmm. for the first session he's done with Brian since Darlin um, a year ago, over a year ago. Yeah, and and uh, the last for a little while too. Uh, it, it does feel like a specific... Um you know, attempt to to revive some old old kind of sound because like we've we've talked about, he's been using totally different drummers this whole time and, you know, he had Jim Gordon for a lot of the a lot of the friends stuff and Norm Jeffries and some other people. Yeah. And um it's he's got kind of a very distinct Brian Wilson old ty- old style sort of drum pattern as well you know at this point he's been kind of doing normal drums for quite a while on all of these songs not all of them but then <laughs> now he's got Hal doing a sort of like um very distinct pattern on the toms as well where he's not really allowed to play a lot and it doesn't work so well without all the extra percussion and things that he used to use in the pet sounds days but it's um mm-hmm. very in the vein of his sort of 66 65 sort of work there 
Um, so, so I was in the booth kind of watching this thing and Brian was singing the intro as a guide um, for where the banjo was going to go later. Um, then on top of this, the overdubs got a few things. They added some acoustic guitars played by uh, Vescovo and Ed Carter. So it's sort of like thick rhythm sounds, just like it's very sort of mid to early 60s kind of thing, uh, throwback. Um, Vescovo played a banjo on this, which sort of gets buried in the final mix. If you if you really squint, you can hear it playing some arpeggios in one of the verses, and then towards the end, it does that sort of like rapid picking stuff, um, which, which mm-hmm. sounds really cool. Uh, Brian played a Fender Rhodes on this thing as well, which you, it's a keyboard that you didn't use very often, but he added these sort of little little keyboard parts. And uh, I guess '68 was kind of like uh, they they were going through kind of a Rhodes phase for a while that they didn't stick with. And then three trumpeters came in and did some very sort of typical 68 Brian trumpet parts. Um, and then that's the track. And then the next day, they, they at the same mm-hmm. studio, ID Sound, they dubbed it down. And Al played his own banjo on this thing. He was the one who played the intro, which is kind of messy, and the outro as well. And did some extra sort of rhythm strumming throughout it as well. So Al gets his own banjo in there. There's two people playing banjo on this song. Yeah, and then, um, yeah, this, this track is sort of a weird combination of a of a sloop sloop jumpy kind of updated pop version of a you know pop country version of a of a folk song and and uh, the kind of soft acoustic thing that brian was doing around this time and al jardine's lead vocal on this sort of um it, it, it's pretty energetic lead vocal you know it, totally not in line with with um I feel the direction that Brian was going on this. Um, I, I feel like they weren't totally locked in with each other on I this. I think it's completely out of place. It's he's, he's trying to get like gritty and he's trying to get some sort of rasp into it, but it doesn't really. I don't think it really works. Like I think his vocal in the single is much better than this one. Um, I, I, yeah, I think it's a good vocal, but it's just not not good for this uh, style of, of, of production. Yeah, it just doesn't fit the track. He's trying to make it this sort of gritty sort of rock vocal almost, but over a sort of gentle folky track. Um, and then the backing yeah. vocals are really sort of, they feel kind of underdeveloped um, to me. It's um, its just three part harmony throughout the whole thing. You know, it starts out seeming like it's Brian and Carl and Bruce, and Brian and Bruce are kind of alternating between doing the, the middle parts or the low parts and the high parts, wherever Brian doesn't want to sing too high, I guess, I don't know. Um, and then Al kind of appears halfway through, and then I'm not sure if Brian's there at the end, like if he swapped places with Al in the booth or... Brian was kind of singing with someone else, um, but these vocals don't sound too great. I don't think they're kind of—it's just Brian, Bruce, Carl, and Al, Mike, and Dennis on this one, and uh, I, I don't think it's a particularly fleshed-out arrangement. And nobody's apart from Carl is singing too well. I, I don't think on this one. Yeah, I mean, it's not like the other things that Brian was doing, which which sort of leads me to believe that this is more of more of an Al Jardine. Uh, vocal arrangement than than Brian's because it, it's it's um, very folky you know it's very you know three part kind of Kingston trio at times with the, the way they harmonize certain lines yeah um and you know Al not being in the in the backing vocals for most of the song makes me sort of think he was directing things from the from the booth and and making sure it was all right and that's probably where his his co production credit comes from besides you know rewriting the whole song and the, and yeah and the, and the single version as well is um uses reuses a lot of ideas from this thing but kind of flashes them out a little bit more yeah yeah and and we'll talk in detail about the single next time um but i think that's a much better version of the song than this even though i i hate to 
to to say Al Jardine did something better than <laughs> than Brian Wilson. Well, I I definitely prefer this. Yeah, I'm I'm different in that, but I, I like completely understand like anyone who does prefer the single. I think I just like it because I like Brian's track and I like the arrangement. Um, but you know, the, it's much more energetic the final one and uh, the vocal. You know, the mm-hmm. single version has one of Al's best vocals ever, and the backing vocals on that sound incredible. Mike sounds fantastic on that one, and he's not here. Um, but it, it's again, it's yeah. it, that one's more sort of straight ahead, like sort of loud, energetic, and this one's more sort of subtle, um, intricate sort of Brian arrangement, which is what I love. But I, I like that we have both versions. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't dislike either of them. I, I really like both. I just this is this is my go-to. But at the same time, there are, mm-hmm. it definitely has some compromises to it. And Al wasn't happy with the way this came out. Yeah, I I totally do like this version, but I I see why they didn't put this out as a single and just just um you know put out i can hear music as the third single from this record and 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 waited until later to flesh it out yeah so i mean we we're talking about this just before we recorded it and i think one of the things about it is um like the baseline is like sloop john b one of the driving things behind it is obviously like it's got an incredible vocal arrangement but it's um the drums kind of develop throughout the song and it's got this incredible baseline that's kind of like drives the whole groove of the whole thing but this it's sort of the drums they don't really go anywhere apart from doing some sort of like more fleshed out fills later in the track and the bass is kind of for the most part sort of just like thumping away on kind of these quarter notes it doesn't really have like a if brian had done sort of one of his trademark sort of left hand things i think it would have given a lot more to the track i think al talked about um how there's that sort of breakdown part where the bass kind of goes like like that was um brian came up with that whole part that was one of his that was sort of a writing contribution almost um and i I wish he i wish he had that sort of level of brianness like on the entire thing because it feels sort of like a pull punch and as well like they didn't do like as many takes as they maybe needed like it's a little loose the track and it doesn't have the energy that it could have it's um it's kind of a compromise this whole thing it's it feels like about 60 percent of the way there to me a lot a lot of missed opportunities with this album i feel um i listened to the you know 2020 the album before doing this after hearing all all the different unfinished songs and sessions and all that and it's it's really not what it could have been you know yeah yeah so, so we've got a couple things left. I think first we'll briefly touch on the smile stuff, which we've talked about plenty in the past. But um, it was on November seventeenth. Yeah. They brought back our prayer, which um, three Beach Boys on that, which it seems to be Carl and Dennis and Bruce. I don't know if Brian had any involvement in this. Yeah, well, three three Beach Boys doing you know new parts, and it's it's still the the same smile track, but just thickening it more. Yeah, they did some kind of like wobbly ooze, both like sort of like. Um, wobbling their fingers on their throats to make kind of the notes wobble and then they you know dennis is definitely doubling mike's bass part and um i think carl and bruce are kind of thickening the um second and third harmonies but they left brian's part alone which was always much louder than the other two than the other three parts on there and then they also added that like um high f towards the end of the song um which i think is probably it sounds like it's carl and bruce together sang that part um steve desper apparently remembers brian coming in and trying to do that trying to do that part and then giving up but i think he's i have a feeling he was remembering surfs up instead of this song because um mm. you know the contract just mentions three beach boys being there and it doesn't seem like the sort of thing you know brian was still singing plenty of high stuff at this point he wasn't you know he could he could do that note if he wanted um yeah it could have been the case where it just didn't sound right or it sounded too shrill or yeah i mean i have a feeling he was i i i do have a feeling he was thinking about surfs up instead of this one but um who knows what the story behind that is? Probably, yeah. Yeah, and then on the um, sorry, when was it? It was October twentieth and twenty one. Um, they brought back Cabin Essence, and Carl did uh, the first lead vocal, and 
Dennis did the um, the second chorus part and then they mixed it down from there. Uh, but then also while they were doing the mixes on uh, Cabin Essence and Our Prayer and All I Want to Do on November 21st, Brian came into Capitol for a few hours um, sometime in the afternoon. And for some reason, like as they were finishing the final mixes of the album, like th- this day and then the next day is when they assembled the album. Brian came in and did like a new track for Time to Get Alone with Carl. Um, and it's it's such a strange sort of unexplained phenomenon that this, um, you know, they completed the song, it was mixed, it was the album was being finalized at that on that very day. And Brian rocks up and then they do this new track. Um, for some reason, even more intriguingly, on the the box it says produced by Carl Wilson as kind of the official producer. But uh, you know, on the session tape, it's clear that it's Brian and Carl both working together on this thing. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> a guy called Bob Norberg engineered this as well, along with Desper. Not the Bob Norberg um, who was an airline pilot and Brian collaborated with in the early '60s. This is a completely different one who also happened to work on some <laughs> Beach Boy stuff. Um, what a strange world. <laughs> yeah. The, uh- Time to Get Alone, even up till now, seems to be one of those songs that was just giving him a lot of grief and he couldn't um, be fully satisfied with it. And and there's a lot of stories of, you know, Brian last minute, you know, remixing Good Vibrations and Please Let Me Wonder <coughs> and, and doing, you know, working until the last second to to make sure something's perfect. But, you know, here he's not just remixing, he, he tried to start the whole song from scratch, <laughs> recorded it in another key with a totally different arrangement. Um, he's uh, He played the piano on this, and there's a... Uh, you know, it, it's it's a much softer sound. It's it's totally different than the whole yeah, it, it's, thing he did with Danny Hutton. It's much more of a piece with the other 68 stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it's it's totally different style. It's just him on the piano throughout instead of all those different sounds layered on top of each other. It's much more laid back sort of like um you know this version of cotton fields we just talked about it's just a couple horns and accordion and then just a basic rhythm section of uh brian on piano carl on guitar a couple bassists and then uh, you know mike kowalski on on drums yeah and um joe osborne played bass on this as well i think there are two bassists on this we're not quite um, sure who the other one is it might be max bennett it might be la ritz um kind of you know we don't have an afm for this one we just know that it was joe joe osborne and then everybody else is kind of from hearing the session um but uh yeah osborne is you know he's another famous racking crew guy who somehow managed to just avoid working with the beach boys for whatever reason throughout the the 60s um he remembered working on some things with um dennis you know he did a few dennis sessions in 69 and uh, 70 but he said that he never did a session with brian uh, but it turns out that he did and he somehow forgot about working with brian wilson which i don't think i would have done that but he uh he well, did he did forget this somehow he probably did a million a sessions different. a day so <laughs> he yeah. did he did a lot of things joe i don't osborne. i don't think uh i don't think joe osborne was a, a big beach boys fan like you are like i'm sure you wouldn't forget it <laughs> he, he yeah i mean he was doing probably you know two or three <laughs> sessions a day he would you know he would have forgotten <laughs> Yeah, just a, a last-minute attempt to change the song that he just immediately gave up on, and 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 they, you know, mixed the re- the regular version of the song for the album. But it it does seem like something that he he was never fully happy with, which is unfortunate because it's I think it's my favorite song on the album. Yeah, and there's some interesting kind of other things he does apart from changing the key. Um, again, the instrumental whole section is gone, just like in in the edit they made to the original version. But also because that instrumental um, section was gone, which kind of takes the chorus and moves it down a whole step, um, 
it was kind of to make this key change happen into the bridge section, but because that's gone now with the edit, they've he's um, changed it so the bridge stays in the key of the rest of the song instead of moving down. So uh, that's kind of different about it. And then also there's no final verse. It just goes from that straight into um, a chorus fade out. So it's kind of been simplified even further. Mm. The accordion and French one parts of this are really nice though. Yeah, it's it's a really, really pretty laid back sound. Um, but yeah, just like that, he did this version, abandoned it, went back and they finished the album on, on those... Um, on those three days at Capitol. Yeah, I mean, the original Time to Get Alone was already mixed at this point, and uh, most of the songs mm. have been mixed. He recorded this, um, th- like, it's, I think it was about 3 p.m. till 6 p.m. because of some chatter on the, the tape. Is So it was in the middle of the afternoon, I'm guessing they were there. I don't know if they would have been mixing Cabanescence and Our Prayer without him beforehand or after or after that, but it's kind of intriguing just to think that Brian was, like, in the, in the building the day that they did that, whether he was there at the same time as Carl mixing those songs or not. There are some photos of um, of, of the session as well. You can see um, Brian and Carl and Desper mm-hmm. and Bob Nolberg in the booth, along with you know that mis- uh, mystery bassist in the background and some other people standing around. It's uh, one of the few sessions we've got photos of, and because it was kind of an un- it's an unusual thing for Brian to show up to Capitol Tower to record as well. He never really worked there. Um, but anyway, they put together the 2020 album, and then they immediately had to go out on tour, um, which is why there was such a rush to get this thing done and uh, throughout November '68. Um, and then that was it. Yep. Yeah. Cool. That's 2020. That's it. It's done. Um, I think we've probably we've pretty much covered all all of what we we think about the album as we've gone through it. So. Yeah, I guess we uh, just to kind of give my final thoughts on the album. Uh, sure, sure. You know, individually, um, I like to some degree everything that went on here, but it's definitely the weakest Beach Boys album. Um, to this point besides maybe you know the Surfing USA album um, there's just nothing really holding it together besides a few musical ideas but it is cool to see Dennis blossoming as a songwriter mm, he's not yeah. quite there you know he's very much finishing other people's songs or letting other people finish his songs um, and exclusively you know working with with um, collaborators but he's going to get better and, and sort of become the, the principal songwriter on the next batch of material we'll cover Mm. um i like pretty much everything brian was doing but i really really wish that he was getting it together with finishing up his material but i know that he was having uh you know mental problems and and um was probably relapsing you know on on some drugs he was taking and i think this is when it started to get really bad in that that respect and he was also tired i think at this point as well he wasn't he was you know, he was mm-hmm. done with being a Beach Boy for the time being, and he sort of wanted the others to be like, you know, if you think it's easy to do this, like, you you give it a go, basically, yeah. is what Marilyn said about it. He was kind of almost passive-aggressive in that way, sort of, like, being like, hey, you see how hard it is to, to do this whole thing, and he was consciously sort of removing mm-hmm. himself from from the, the group at this time. Because he was, you know, Brian wasn't, like, doing really badly at this point. I'm sure he was having his problems, but he was out and about going to the Yellow Submarine, Premier, he was um, still yeah, participating going to church in, parties. Going to church parties, um, participa- <laughs> participating in um, some sessions, and then after the album was done in December that year, he did um, another thing with the Honeys, which it seems like he was completely relaxed and and like much more, you know, happy to do this thing than he was doing Beach Boys material at the time. I'm not sure how this came about, but didn't um, Murray do that? Um, come to me, yes. Thing with them beforehand. Yes, so- 
the the honeys were were you know looking to do another song because they they were back with uh ginger blake who had been busy doing other session work since the last you know honeys material from 64 and uh i think the reason that they got murray involved was because you know he was interested in, in doing music somehow you know his his whole thing with uh ron wilson didn't work out um the beach boys didn't end up actually releasing that song and brian was busy with the album so uh he had an original song called come to me which was recorded at sunset sound on december 2nd 1968 and this is a pretty cool song um and it's 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 pretty catchy i think he worked with rick hen on this one um but I think it sounds like Brian, the intro to a, a spy um, TV show, which is not a bad yeah, thing, but that's what it does sound like. <laughs> it's very Murray was very much into that soft pop, late '60s kind of sound, which Brian really never approached or or had anything to do with. Um, and Brian, I think, heard this and thought, you know, you guys can do better than this. And I think <laughs> his dislike of this song is sort of what inspired him to actually produce a song for the honeys which we know he was thinking about doing earlier with time to get alone but that song ended up with the beach boys yeah and, and they considered a f- country air is, is is this is this one we were thinking about doing country air yeah they were considering doing a, a, a few different options i think yeah country air was one of them um uh, maybe some other beach boy songs i think um God, let me pull it up. I have it somewhere in, in the in the liner notes. But they had, um, yeah, Under the Boardwalk, Chapel of Love um, were some other songs that were considered. But they landed oh, on... I wish they did that. <laughs> ...covers of... Yeah, me too. They landed on, on covers of Goodnight My Love and Tonight You Belong to Me. And so Brian produced these tracks at Wally Hyder. Um, or sorry, United. Um... And the, on December he didn't, 9th. he didn't arrange them. Yeah, he didn't yeah, arrange on them. December 9th. He um, got Al Capps, the, who's the guy who arranged the Ron Wilson singles earlier in the year. So um, he was kind of an established yeah. arranger. And this is basically just, I think it's just Brian taking it easy, basically. Like, he doesn't want to go in and have yeah. the, the hassle of kind of arranging a record. He just wants someone else to do to do that part, really, and kind of oversee it and have a good time. Like, it seems like, you know, from what Ginger said about this, when he was working with the Honeys, Brian could sort of really sort of relax and be himself and not think about being overly competitive and and having all the mm-hmm. hassles of you know family stuff with the beach boys he could just you know have a good time and enjoy making it and i think this is brian's way of just like making an easy record like it's doing something he wants to do but he doesn't want to get sort of too overly involved and stressed out about making it, it a sort yeah. of like competitive hit he just wants to you know watch it happen and do the vocals and and produce really that's all it is yeah, and I don't, I don't want to say like there was less drama with the Honeys because, you know, there was sometimes he got in fights with Marilyn and, and later on some of the spring stuff became difficult yeah. because, of, because of that. But um, there was sort of that lack of, of um, you know, pressure because they weren't a well-known group. None of their songs ever, you know, became hits. So as much as he was trying for that in the early 60s, I think this is sort of a way for him to lean back and just make some good music that he was happy about and he didn't do the track arrangement he hired al caps for that but he did um kind of take charge of the vocals and and tell them tell the three girls what to sing and you know that's i think that's what he liked doing the best so yeah 
And um, he's got kind of some old friends on the track as well. I mean, Don Radley is playing on, on this thing for the first time in a while. I mean, he was on mm -hmm. Never Learn Not to Love, but he hasn't worked with Brian since, um, I think, 60, 66 it would have been. Um, and there's a great photo of them in the studio with Don Randy's at the piano and Brian has the most colourful shirt in the entire world and he's kind of just laughing and he's really <laughs> happy. Um, Alvis Gover's on guitar as well. Ray Pullman's back. He uh, hasn't been on anything in a while. Larowitz is almost mm -hmm. is also there. Gene Estes. And then a lot of other people like um, Mike Rubini who's done some sessions before and um, all these horn players and, and tons of string players. It's quite a big track. I mean, I think it's one of the reasons Brian didn't want to he, 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 it's this sort of very soft pop kind of um, mid-60s orchestral type thing um, and same with yeah. um, both the tracks are quite are very similar there's not a lot of difference between the two of them but they're, they're good arrangements I think they're, they're much better than the Ron Wilson stuff um, and also there's, you know there's one interesting thing about the track on Goodnight My Love which is that Brian apparently played a Moog synthesizer he was sat uh, on the floor of the studio presumably in Wally Hyder's because they have this thing there and he just wanted to give it a try and this would be, I guess, not counting been way too long if that's what it, what it is it's the first time Brian himself played a, a Moog um, synth on, on a song and it's kind of, it seems like it's this sort of like bass sort of fuzz thing doubling the trombones um, very simple mm -hmm. part, it's just a, it seems like Brian just had like a, a new toy in the studio and he wanted to get, give it a try on with something really simple so that that's kind of neat yeah, and that won't become his principal instrument or something he uses all the time until much later. But. No, he, he avoided it. But Den Dennis and, uh, and Carl went for the, the move much much before Brian did and uh, serious productions. It yeah. took, took Brian a while longer to get on board with that, but it's neat that he's given it, given it a go this early. The vocals on this are really nice. Brian didn't sing with the three of them, which he sometimes liked to do in the early 60s. This yeah, time it's yeah, just, it's just them, it's, right? it's just the three girls singing, singing on this, and... Really nice vocals. I think both the songs are good songs and they're good arrangements and they sound good. I really enjoy both of these things. I think Good Night My Love is um, my favorite of the two just yeah. by a smidge. That was originally the A-side and then they ended up flipping it so Tonight You Belong To Me was the A-side. And there's been like, you know, there's been so many versions of Tonight You Belong To Me but I think The Honey's one is obviously my favorite because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a Brian Wilson fan. <laughs> it, they are really good versions. The song Tonight You Belong To Me uh, comes as a two-part uh, harmony song either way so he just kind of has Marilyn and Diane doing that and then he has Ginger doing some like kind of improv responses at the end and then they whisper tonight yeah yeah and there's like a tape where he talks about that later <laughs> yeah it's on um it's it's when they're doing um America I know you the Kalanich thing it's already on the tape that Brian's recorded at home. There's this conversation between Brian and uh, I think Ginger and he like mentions the way they went tonight on the end of the song and it's just um it's just it's just nice. I wish we had more recordings of Brian at home, just in random conversations, like mentioning Connie's records. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this single came out in March. Um, didn't really go anywhere. And uh, 2020, I guess we should say, uh, came out in February '69. And I can hear music was a follow-up single. And um, that was their last studio album on Capitol. Although that wasn't the original plan. Um, but I guess we'll talk about that material next time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that because I feel like I've like I mentally have been so far past 68 for a long time. But yeah, <laughs> the 1969 first half stuff is something that hasn't really been talked about a lot. So I'm kind of excited to get to that stuff. It hasn't, and it's kind of my my least thought about like Beach Boys era. Me, me too. <laughs> at least so far, like out of out of all this stuff, <laughs> probably just because Brian really was not there. Mm. He was really not part of that. Yeah, but um. 
All right. That's yeah. 2020. And that's the Honey single. And uh, I guess we're done. All right. All right. All right. Thank you guys for sticking with me. This has been Sail On, the Beach Boys podcast. For a more mature audience, there is an extended segment on the All I Want to Do session over on the Patreon page. Check the link in the show notes. I think you know where that's going. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate Will and John. I appreciate Will C., who does all our music cues. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back in a month. Hang on to your ego, take good care of your feet, and sail on, sailors. on a sec i've got to answer the door hang on <laughs> he's got to answer the door who's there you gonna hurt me do i look like i'm gonna hurt you brother well who are you prophet poet and a friend come on i have a surprise for you <laughs>